So I'll start, uh, start off by just saying I didn't manage to wangle any sponsorship this week, Rupert. Pay for this out of our own pockets, unfortunately. Oh, um, that's all right. I'll pay uh, <laughs> and the and also, I have in in a state of play crossover. Um, I have been playing a load of Mega Drive games over the last two days, and I re- I did not know I owned this game. Right, I knew I had Lawnmower Man, obviously, on the Mega Drive. <laughs> Who but does? I was I I own Warlock on the Mega Drive based on the Julian Sands film, and I didn't know that was a game. I no, uh, but, I did. I didn't realize that was a game. No. It's it's bizarre. Why is it okay? Because <laughs> <laughs> the film was released in 1989, and the sequel, Warlock the Armageddon, was 93. The game was released in 94, but it's got the and it's called Warlock, but it's got the cover art of the second film, so it's obviously tied into that. It's all right, actually. Um, it's got really nice animation. The gameplay is like really baffling, but uh, Julian Sands is actually in it. There's a there's a sp- like actually digitized footage of his face. I was over Ooh. the moon, over the moon. 4K? Uh, no, I think I probably paid about a tenner for it. <clears throat> so, I have actually... I know I was quite light. Uh, it's the only time I've ever been light, let me tell you. <laughs> don't get a weight problem. Because I've got an ongoing issue. Um, with, uh, with, with films last time, but this time I've smashed into films and I've got nine on the go. And... Those nine are Police Academy 1, Police Academy 2, no, um, Heaven Adores You, an Elliot Smith documentary, Scare Me, Bats, Ghost Keeper, Wake in Fright, Creepy, His House, The Ninth Configuration, and White of the Eye. Have you seen White of the Eye? Because I'm sure you talked about it in a previous yes, podcast. I talked about it um, a few weeks ago now. How? Yes. How? And the 1987 film. Yes. The very weird the one by Donald Camel. Is it Donald Camel? I think it's yeah. Scottish director. He blew his brains out with a shotgun. I don't remember. I have to. I don't. All the things I was picking up on it, I thought I have no recollection of you talking about this, but the title seemed familiar. And right. I. Did you like it? I, I did enjoy it in a weird way. Uh, I don't think it's one. It's not one you just go back to time and time again, but it was. It's a weird art house slasher sort of then it turns into like sort of domestic thriller type thing isn't it it's very odd i well i i must have had a totally because i was watching it thinking what um so yeah I, i'm actually after i talk about it with you today briefly i'm going to go back and listen to your podcast because i it's like a blank spot in my mind i, yeah. I so i'm interested to see what you said so sorry what have you got what have you got coming up what have I got? I have um, quite a few. I've got Adam's Family Values, uh, Gremlins 2, The New Batch, The Haunted Mansion, Three Men and a Baby, Three Men and a Little Lady, Spiral, Black Box, What Killed Michael Brown, The Sixth Sense, Doom, and The Goonies. Doom is in the Carl Urban Doom. Oh, yes. <laughs> Interesting. Um <laughs> Well, you've got more than me, I think. So, do you want to kick off first? All right. Oh, yeah. Shall yeah. I cover? Shall I quickly go over White of the Eye, actually, because that's one you've seen as well, isn't it? Yes. Although, yeah. I, I, like you, I'm not sure I remember all the details about it because oh. it is erratic. <laughs> that film, in a narrative <laughs> I, sense, 
I'll do it towards the end because I've got it as my last film to talk about. Anyway, so right. go on, you, you you jump in and I'll uh, I'll go for you. Okay, let's talk about Adam's Family Values then, um, which is obviously the sequel to the Adam's Family, uh, made a couple of years later and in '93, I think. So, it this opens in a very amusing way with Morticia Adams suddenly announcing she's pregnant, and within moments, there's a new baby. <laughs> she, she's got no bump or anything and she's still constantly illuminated in spotlight and looking like glamorous all the time but yeah she gives birth to basically what is gomez with a mustache um and uh wednesday and pugsley the her older kids are jealous of the new arrival so they attempt to kill him through various methods that's a dark story is this a pg <laughs> yeah. so so the parents so gomez and morticia hire a nanny who's played by Joan Cusack and her my fancy yes and her ulterior motive is to seduce and marry uncle fester <laughs> and then kill him and inherit his money uh in the meantime she has to get the Wednesday and Pugsley out of the way so she sends them to summer camp Wednesday and Pugley, Pugsley realize the nanny's plot um and so they they need to race back and stop um the nanny from getting away with it basically it the film follows really it just follows the main kind of story beats of the original film it's essentially the same plot about someone trying to infiltrate the adams family in order to get at their wealth really it's slightly more tightly plotted than the first film i'd say and it does have an even crueler sense of humor because that all that stuff about the kids literally trying to murder the baby, <laughs> just hilarious. Like just throwing him off a roof or just chopping his head off with a guillotine and stuff. It's really good. Uh, but yeah, the real star in this one is Wednesday Adams played by Christina Ritchie. Uh, because obviously she's sent to this summer camp and she just has this really, really cynical and droll, like uh, sense of humor. And the camp counselors are played perfectly by um, Peter McNichol and Christine Baranski. Um, and they have this really sinister positivity about them. And they've just got these constant, like, rigor mortis grins. Um, and there's a there's a really funny moment where Wednesday actually forces a smile, which reminded me of the bit in Terminator 2, the director's cut, where Arnie does a smile. Although, clearly here it's a bit more appropriate. That was just weird in, in Terminator 2. Um, Wednesday has a romance with this slightly awkward kid, which isn't very funny, but it's sort of sweet, I suppose. I'd say the joke rate is pretty much on par with the original um, overall, although perhaps the script is a little too reliant on these kind of withering single word responses. Um um, and despite only it only came out as I say two years after the first film, it didn't do well at the box office. Uh, it's not quite clear why, oh, because really? usually when you know, obviously the first one was very successful, and then usually when when the second film comes along, it's, you know, pretty close behind within two years, and it usually does pretty well. But not yeah, this one. It's a fan base like Home Alone yeah. two, for example. Yeah. Um, but I think I wonder. The theory is, is that the Admiral's family is just too novelty and experience, if you see what I mean. And maybe audiences weren't that bothered about just watching the same slightly odd family doing the same stuff again. I don't know. But I would say it's, 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 on it's a, a weird one because 
it's not like it's um it's it's quite niche isn't it so, you know the whole the whole family that that really dark it's like extremely dark subject matter dressed up in sort of maudlin comedy it, it, it it's mm. it's really good to you you'd think the second film it's like there's there's not many of those films with <laughs> that kind of family oriented black humor yeah. so you'd think it would have done well but that, yeah i just assumed it had to be honest yeah i, I did too i think like a lot of films i remember watching at the time when i would have been a kid i i just assumed they because i i loved it at the time i just assumed it must have done really well but then sometimes you you actually look at the figures and you realize oh actually it flopped <laughs> like no one remembers it but um i know i'd say it's definitely it's yeah it's on par with the original definitely it's a pity there wasn't a third one maybe it would have been pushing it a bit third one um but yeah, and it's, I just like how underlying, underneath all of like the darkness and the murder and really, really jet black humour, there is a kind of sense of family, belonging and um, kind of loyalty that is, there are family values there behind all that stuff, which is quite nice in a way. So there is something relatable about it. Um, you say that, less so trying to murder their own children, but you know, the the um, you mentioned that it was going to be a third, and I suppose Raul Julia died in one ninety four, ninety five. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, so that probably put a bit of stop. Yeah, he must have died in ninety five because it was just after Street Fighter, of course. Uh, what a way to go! <laughs> it's how we all want to go, isn't it? Um, yeah. So, and that was Street on Street Fighter, a film without any street fighting in it. Lest we forget. <laughs> um, what did you watch? That, is that Netflix? Um, That's on Netflix. Netflix. Yeah, I think they're both on Netflix at the moment. Um, I'm going to do uh, a quick one here. This is um, Heaven Adores You, which is a 2014 documentary about the music and life of Elliot Smith, of whom I am a very big mm -hmm. fan. And I watched this before, and uh, I, I remember really liking it. But I watched it. I wanted on my birthday uh, on in October, just gone. I wanted to. Um, I wanted to be upset for some reason. So I, I listened mm. to like loads of music that I knew would really kind of get to me. And then at the end of the night, after a few few brown ones, I thought, well, I'll watch Heaven Adores You again because I bought a few of his albums on vinyl recently. And yeah, I, I, so I, I went into this as a fan, and it's a really nice documentary. It's quite low key and sort of campfirey because um, for people who aren't familiar with Elliot Smith, he was. Uh, born in 69 in Portland and um, basically released a string of albums uh, culminating in the biggest one was probably um, the song Miss Misery off the Goodwill Hunting soundtrack and then mm. died, killed himself effectively in I think it was 2003. So it, it's it's obviously about a man whose life was tragically cut short and was very troubled but it doesn't really dwell on that like some documentaries i've watched mm. of like cooking where they focus on like the more harrowing aspects of the life this is more of just a celebration a quiet celebration of his music and yeah. it's full of interviews with um, producers he worked with um, most of whom were close friends um he had sort of a very tight-knit community around him when it came to his his music and stuff so it's it's all like um just sort of like friends reflecting on like little stories with him and how how uh, success affected him but it never goes too far down that path so it's it mm. almost feels considering the underlying darkness and sadness of the of his life it's more of a celebration of his music and 
I, I it's a really nice little documentary and i think it is one that i will go back to every every five years or so and just watch because it's it's very breezy it's not too challenging it's got mm. it's, it's got a lot of music music in it i think it's the only film uh, made based on his life that was given the backing of of his estate and and surviving family so it's got some you know pretty rare music in the background and stuff and yeah it's just a nice documentary on him yeah i suppose the temptation is with these documentaries about young tra- people who are tragically taken away uh the temptation is to focus on what went wrong and sort of yeah. you, you kind of you know the ending so it's all about oh you know it started well and then it was just decline 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 until the tragic ending uh, this was um, see was... the amy whitehouse documentary for example <laughs> oh really yeah it's there was a document two documentaries on Cobain I'm also a big fan of um, released about five years ago six years ago at the same time in this within a few months of each other and I watched them both back to back and one of them was just a, I've forgotten the name one I think one of them was called Bleach I can't remember the other one and it, collage of heck montage of heck anyway um, one of them was just kind of talking about his life blah 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 music success boom 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 and the other one was just like really full of just really like miserable harrowing footage of him in like his worst moments like private mm. private family footage of him doing drugs and you're like i don't want to watch this like <laughs> mm. i know i know what happened like can we just you know some sort of celebration of the good that happened all the music yeah. that came out maybe it's a, bit, it's a bit disingenuous isn't it because that's not the totality of their life and and the reason we know about these people is because of the positive work they actually did. They created things that and left a legacy, and that's a positive, uh, undying thing. And yet, to so to focus on their dying doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, it just it's a bit um, I don't know. It's a bit of a, just a tabloid way of looking at things, isn't it? Really? Yeah, and it's also the most uninteresting part of it because yeah. it's like it's such a when someone dies it's such a definite thing that is so yeah. well documented you're like well let's just you know let's have some i know interviews with people who knew them or maybe some unreleased music or little insights into into things that isn't in the public domain at the moment so yeah just to say oh he blew his brains out didn't he for basically two hours you're like oh, yeah i know this <laughs> um yeah so so yeah heaven adores you um really nice light documentary on elliot smith so i know and it's quite open to um, newcomers as well. It's, uh, yeah, I was going to ask, actually, is it something, if you don't know much about Elliot Smith, would you be informed about him? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's like a, it's sort of a birth to death thing. So you do get like right. the, um, it makes you want to listen to the music, um, which is fine because the music is good, especially his album Either Or, which is one of the best albums ever made. Right. Hashtag, hashtag yeah. just saying. <laughs> <laughs> IMO. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, from Elliot Smith to Gremlins to the new batch, then. <laughs> Natural leap. Um, actually, this is another horror comedy sequel that didn't do as well as the original. I think with this, it's a bit more obvious why. To be honest. <laughs> It's because this was this came out a full six years after the first film. And it wasn't as well received critically. Um, and its budget was three times the original films. So I'm not right in thinking budget, so. carry on. Yeah. This was it was also like much darker. Uh, I right? would I, I've heard that said. I think 
I would say it's not darker, but it is more violent, I suppose. It's grosser, but I would say it's actually, in terms of tone, it's kind of a bit breezier in a way, because it's just so ridiculous. Partly because I'm, I, don't, I don't think they had a script a lot of the time. I think they just let puppeteers loose and just let them do make their own thing, you know. Just made up seasons they went along. But anyway, so in this one, um, Billy and Kate from the original now live in New York City. And they're both working at a corporation, a mega corporation called Clamp. Clamp Industries or something. Um, and the building, this is like a tower block, and, and the building is almost entirely automated um and then um and clamp is trying to uh basically expand his empire so he smashes down the old pet shop in chinatown where where they obviously got gizmo in the original um they discover gizmo the mogwai um in there and kidnap him basically and bring him to the clamp building because they've got like this genetics research uh section uh, of clamp industries Anyway, Gizmo gets wet and he spawns another gremlin apocalypse, basically, and it, they take over the building. And that's pretty much it as far as the plot goes. Um, the Who film plays is Clamp, just, by the way? Is it someone we know? Uh, yes, it is John Glover. Is that his name? John Glover. You do know him. You will know his face. He's amazing. But we'll come to that anyway. Yeah, so just the film is nuts. It's just the plot is just a setup for as many different sort of micro monster ideas as possible. Really, there's like a there's a bat gremlin, there's a spider gremlin, there's a transsexual gremlin, there's this gremlin intellectual who goes on like a chat show, uh, um, and there are constant references to like classic horror films. Like, well, I mean, for a start, Christopher Lee is the genetics lab um scientist guy um and when the spider gremlin sprouts legs uh, it samples that uh kind of shivering monster sound from the thing which is brilliant um you get phantom of the opera you get rambo um is even a scene where the film completely stops and the gremlins start doing like finger puppets in front of like a blank screen and then it cuts to a scene where <laughs> It's a scene in a cinema, which is playing the Gremlins 2 movie. And it's got where Paul Bartel from Chopping Mall um, goes and gets Hulk Hogan to force the Gremlins to start the movie again. It's just, it's just insane. But It just sounds like they're all just having fun making it. Yeah, yeah it's just, it, it really feels like the kind of a kind of a film where they just didn't have a script at any point as far as I can see. And they were just making up as they went along, but in a good way. So, um, because I think mostly because it's obviously it's all practical effects. So it just looks like they were just enjoying. It's a celebration of, yeah, practical puppetry and stuff. Really. I think it's like in the first one, like Zach Galligan as Billy is the least interesting character in the movie. Um, but that's okay because it's not about him, it's about the Gremlins. Um, uh, Phoebe Cates has a little bit more to do, but the real star is John Glover as Clamp. He's he's brilliant. He's so he's so weirdly believable as this kind of corporation boss. I think, I haven't looked him up, but I think when I hear the name John Glover, am I right in thinking that he was the kind of camp hitman in that, in, um, 
Oh my god, that film we watched, Night of the Running Man, with. Mm. I think he works alongside. Oh, I forgot the name of the uh, Scott Glenn in that film. Yeah. Yeah, yes. that's the one I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He was in one of the Superman shows as Lex Luthor, I'm pretty sure. I, I just gave a perfect example of the high point of his career, Rupert. You don't need to give other examples. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone would have got it from that. Um, <laughs> An Andrew McCarthy film from the late eighties. Sorry, go on. <laughs> he, he, uh, yeah, yeah. He's like weirdly believable. Like he's sort of over ambitious and ridiculously positive, charismatic and persuasive. Not really evil, but just naive more than anything. Um, Anyway, the, yeah, it's it's as much a satire of eighties, more of a satire of eighties culture than the first. I'd say, uh, it's it's set in the, the heart of Reagan's America and New York, and it just takes constant light jabs at consumerism, lazy technology, TV culture everywhere. And I, I like how much of a departure it is from the original film because the original film was obviously set in a small town, um, and it was more of a typical kind of more of a horror than a comedy really um and this is this is more much more comedic much more slapstick it's more like a live action cartoon but it is i think it is harsher like some of the the violence in it is pretty bit more brutal than the first one um it's much faster paced than the first film and it's just really erratic and anarchic in the best possible way and I think it can get away with it because the lack of sort of narrative discipline is consistent with the subject matter, if you like. Like the idea that gremlins, the gremlins that being depicted on screen literally t- like take over the film you're watching is quite a cool meta idea. So, yeah, I love it. I think it's better than the first one. And if you like practical puppetry, especially monster puppets, then it's amazing because it's just wall to wall i'm gonna guess i'm gonna guess that you watch that on netflix it isn't on anything at the moment i actually watched on blu-ray yeah oh right okay 4k not 4k no i haven't taken the 4k leap yet will i ever (laughs) i'm not sure (laughs) well from a really good film to one that I watched, this uh, this is a film called Scare Me, which was on I think it's Shudder. Is it on Shudder? Yes, yes it is. I keep seeing uh, advertising. I am going to say some words in an order that will make you maybe not watch it. So this is a comedy horror film already danger words. Comedy horror film starring Aya Cash and um, I think his name's Josh Rubin who. Uh, directed wrote and starred in it do you remember Mm. when we both watched the mortuary collection one of the things we both said was when it said it was a shut original i was like oh is this going to be like a really cheap you know how much money has shutter got behind it effectively to make films and we were both really pleasantly surprised because mortuary collection was amazing yeah well scare me is a is a really low budget film and it's the premise is that uh, Joss Rubin plays a guy called Fred, who is like a struggling writer, uh, who gets in a taxi, has a conversation with a taxi driver about you know, writing, um, writing scripts and stuff, gets dropped off at this sort of snowy cabin. 
to write, you know, to sort of as a sort of creative retreat. And Ayakash is a nearby successful writer doing the same thing. And there's a power cut and they both head to Fred's cabin. And the, most of the film is made up by them telling each other scary stories. Hence the title of Scare Me. The problem with this film is it is not funny. And I turned it off after half an hour because I was starting to feel a bit embarrassed. Um, which is, they're just telling each other these stories. Are they dramatized? Yeah, no, they literally, the camera stays on them and they just tell stories, like silly horror stories about like, um, you know, about about uh, like a, a boy who sees his parents killed by a werewolf and stuff like that. But it literally just cuts between them, the person talking, the person listening. There are some sort of little flourishes like, um, you know, there's a part where like uh, Fred is describing like a tree. And then as he's like twisting his hands like a tree, there's like a, a, sh- a reflection behind him uh, that is of like a gnarled tree. But mm. mostly it's just them telling stories. And it is as boring as you think. It's just if I just sat in the room with you and just told the story, and no matter how animated I was, I was waiting for the film to cut away to the actual story and then cut back yeah. to them after, which would have been, if you like, better. Because aside from a few moments, and bear in mind, I only watched it for half an hour. Um, aside from when they do impressions of people, like there's a bit where um, uh, the main guy, Fred, does an impression of um, Jack Nicholson. And he does. They do a couple of other impressions of bits and pieces, like the the uh, crypt keeper from um, Tales from the Crypt, mm. and they they they're, they're accurate, and they're like, oh, that's quite impressive. But it's not enough. So yeah, and the whole film is really one speed. It's effectively this struggling, effectively talentless hack writer saying something that he's proud of, and then Aya Cash's character just putting him down and making out that she's better. Because she is, she's just a much more successful writer. So that's it. Mm. He says something, and she she just puts him down and emasculates him, and that's it. And and you're like, right. So and then when I realised they were just telling each other stories, and I was laughing. And there was a point when I looked at Faye to to think, you know, when you think, am I missing something here? Is this <laughs> is this just not clicking with me? And and I looked at her, and she said, we can turn it off if you want. And I said, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do, I do want to turn it off. Um, so, but weirdly, it's got really good reviews, and I can understand that maybe if the humour clicks clicks with someone, or maybe mm. it's impressively filmed on its budget. But for me, it was just boring, boring, and then and slightly embarrassing. It sounds like the setup to an anthology horror: people yes. going to a place and telling each other stories. But an but anthology with the, with horror, the horror, the anthology. Yeah, so yeah. it's just yeah. And and it's um, because the humour just comes from like you said these kind of withering put downs that Aya Cash comes out with. It's 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 like really one note. So mm. and I just thought I'm not willing to watch ninety minutes of this, of people like just really mm. um, energetically telling these pretty. There's also a bit at the start um, where he says to her, "I'm writing a story about werewolves," and she sort of mm. oh, werewolves yawn. That's been number four, but yet mm. we know we know specifically that the reason she is a famous writer is because she's just written a book about zombies. And you're like, well, that's just the same. Jeez. They're just they're just stereotype. Yeah. So I think it, it zombies have probably been more more kind of overused in horror filmmaking, than they and literature hmm. probably. Better. My thoughts but. exactly. So yeah, I I'd be interested if you watched it to see what you think. But and I would be interested to hear from anyone who watched it and said yes, it's funny or yes, it's good because I just wasn't seeing it at all. Um, it, you know John Carpenter's The Fog, right? Yes, made in nineteen eighty, right? 
so maybe 40 years ago that starts off with a five minute scene of an old guy telling a story telling a scary story around a campfire and sort of describing he's basically foreshadowing events that are to come and you know what happens in that film cuts away and we see the things happen Uh, it's it's that simple if it had been that it just sat there with that that guy telling a story for 90 minutes i don't think it would have had the same impact just gonna say you can't just say things like that you can't back up you're telling me if the fog was just an old man talking to someone on a single shot that doesn't cut away it wouldn't have been as successful and and the fog of the title would just be his slightly foggy memory so be like that happened i can't really remember yeah it's him in a cloud of smoke and like sort of campfire smoke um like having having foggy memories of the character (laughs) foggy from last of the summer wine it's like i think i could picture him for 90 minutes I think I think I could picture him. I think he had a hat on. I can't, I'm not sure. Did he ever see like a deer stalker? Was it like a like a checked sort of green <laughs> padded number? And then and then after 90 minutes, you just hear John Carpenter go cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the big punchline at the end would be like the camera turns and all the kids are just gone. They are gone because they got bored. <laughs> They're like, what is last of the summer wine? We're like living on the Californian coast here. <laughs> Uh, right then so yes not 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 a film that i i will i wouldn't even ever make it through to be honest yeah i probably i don't think i'm even going to try to be honest um right okay well let's talk about i've got another horror here sort of horror called the haunted mansion and this is on disney plus which should tell you something so it's a horror comedy (laughs) <laughs> it's a Disney <laughs> horror comedy based on a theme park ride made in 2003 with heavy use of CGI starring Eddie Murphy long after his heyday. So you can imagine, it is you imagine the scriptwriter saying that in the office and then swinging an imaginary baseball bat <laughs> out of the park guys. <laughs> <laughs> and then swing it at his own head. Uh, it is, that is a recipe for disaster when you put it on paper, but it's not as bad as all that, I suppose. Pirates of the Caribbean say, was based on a theme well, park, right? Yes. So it was Battleship. Um, I say not as bad as all that. All that, really, what I mean is it's not as bad as an Adam Sandler horror comedy. So yeah. there's something. At least this has kind of vaguely sincere characters. And Eddie Murphy is always watchable, whatever he's in. Um, anyway, he plays uh, a real estate agent, or sorry, a realtor, Um Uh, along with his business partner and wife, and they take their kids on a trip to a lake. But en route, they stop off at this potential investment opportunity. That's right, the Haunted Mansion. Uh, Inside, they meet the very strange owners, including a creepy butler played by Terence Stamp, who's always good value as well. Oh, yeah. The family kidnaps... They kidnap Eddie's wife, believing her to be the reincarnated spirit of the Lord of the Manor's ex-wife, so it's kind of like Bram Stoker's Dracula sort of thing in that regard. Um, meanwhile, Eddie Murphy and the kids have this sort of adventure through the house's catacombs uh, with his, all his tombs and the cemetery. And yes, it's all kind of a bit like a fairground ride. The problem is with this film is that... Hello. Um, Sorry, how the my problem with fell. this one... You've got, you're obviously staying in the haunted mansion yourself. Um, 
the problem is is that the script doesn't give Eddie Murphy any jokes. So the only <laughs> the only alleged humour comes from him grinning inanely, or from the supposedly spooky situations he finds himself in. Um, and all of virtually all of the spooky situations involve really elaborate visual effects. And as we know, any kind of visual joke which involves elaborate visual effects is l- instantly less funny. So I, I, I get that this is a horror for kids. So, But I, I'm not sure that should mean that our kind of bar should be lowered, really. And it's it's very tame. Like... I, I, but I do think that kids can handle worse than this. I mean, if you look at some filmmakers like Steven Spielberg or Peter Jackson, who've made some pretty grotesquely scary moments for for younger kids, or in fact, just look at the work of Leica, the the animation studio who made sort of Coraline and Paranorman and stuff. So kids can safely be freaked out, but this is very, very tame. Um, and at the so okay. It's for younger kids, but at the same time, you've got this main story about this ancient guy trying to resurrect his old flame, which is probably too heavy and too morose for very young children anyway. Um, So it doesn't quite find a balance, I don't think. On the plus side, there is some really awesome kind of bright gothic production design. And some of the ghost designs are really cool. There's um, my favourites were this, this barbershop quartet made out of these disembodied statue heads, which are quite funny. Um, and the action scenes are okay, but it does feel like a fairground ride. It really does. There's a, by that I mean, there's a lot of very disparate set piece scenes, if you see what I mean. Just excuses for kind of chase sequences and stuff, which have very little to do with the main plot. It just seems like it's going on elsewhere. Um, it's all right. It's something well, would, you can just chop up in the background. Would it be something that it sounds like because it's so bright and colourful and kind of all over the mm-hmm. shop? Is it something that it sounds like something that would entertain children? Possibly. It doesn't sound like it's to, boring. Um, no, but I do think that this whole the whole kind of central plot about him trying to resurrect this the spirit of his old wife from hundreds of years ago or whatever, which, as I said, is very reminiscent of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Obviously, not nearly as morose as that, but. Um, it is weirdly sort of serious that part of it. While meanwhile, you get this really like broad slapstick stuff going on with Eddie Murphy at the same time, and of course, what's his name? Wallace Wallace Shawn is it? The guy from Princess Bride with the speech impediment. He he he's yeah. one of the ghosts. He's pretty amusing. So so you get all that stuff, which is very broad. But then yeah, this central plot is oddly dark and serious so i think yeah i'm not sure kids would really get along with that part of it but like it looks so i really like the kind of visual style of it it's very uh cartoony kind of gothic lots of like dark purples and stuff like that it just looks quite nice and the cg isn't too bad considering it is 2003 because as we know that was the period of oh just it just uses as much CG as possible, regardless <laughs> yeah. of its quality. So, so it's yeah. a middle So it's it's a middle and yes, I don't think it's not really one you're ever it's gonna so sit down and watch intently. <laughs> um, 
Okay, I'm going to move on to my next film. Now, I'm what I'm going to do is, if you in 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 my left hand is Netflix, and in my right hand is Amazon Prime, right? You have to guess which channel I watch this on, and I'm just going to just say a few words to describe it, right? Okay. EM Entertainment. <laughs> Canon Films. No. Um, Bats, 1999, CG, Lou Diamond Phillips, Dina Meyer, Bob Gunton. Um, well, I'm pretty sure it's not going to be on the BFI player, so I'm, I reckon it's got to be Prime. This one, it is. It's a it's a primer. Um, so this is this is a film I remember. This was one of the when I worked in the video store. This was one of the newer films was in there before I finished working there when I was a teenager. So this is a horror film from 1999, starring Ludwig Phillips, Dina Meyer, Bob Gunton, who is amazing in this film, and Leon, who I didn't. He is Leon. Effectively, is in this film. Uh, like a hell no character you know what i mean mm. like, like that kind of a character that is there for comedic like oh hell no at everything that happens and you're like oh come on shut up now so he's irritating effectively mm. um so the film is ludum phillips is um uh, the sheriff of a town called gallop and there's been a load of murders um uh, at the start and the prime suspects are bats and mm. the uh they call in Dina Meyer and her associate Leon, who is like um, an expert on bats. I'm not sure. Oh, I'm looking at it now. Chiropterologists. I'm looking at this on Wikipedia because I can remember the name. And um, she, so they bring her in to sort of say, how can we kill the bats? Or, or at least, um, you know, sort of, um, what's the word? Coop them up somewhere, you know, localize them so we can contain, contain them and stop these murders happening because they're feeding on humans instead of, you know, fruit or whatever bats normally eat and then they stop eating fruit pastels and they start eating people's eyes so we want to we want to at least meet them in the middle and give them ham sandwiches or something um so yeah it's 1999 and as you say cg heavy but the cg isn't that bad in this because of course because it's like a, a huge swarm of thousands well they say millions yeah. of bats at one point i'm thinking what it, and and they're so fast it kind of gets away with it so it, yeah. that's fine this film I don't know if it still is, but at one point was on IMDb's bottom 100, right? And it's a film that, because I really used to like Ludama Phillips, no idea why. I can't think of a single film I've ever seen him in. But I, I've never Young watched guns. this. My, no, I've never seen it. So <laughs> my mum my mum used to love Ludama Phillips, and she said, oh, no, that's really crap. So I just never watched it. So I finally got around to it. And it, when I was watching it, maybe I enjoyed it more than I thought because I was thinking, why is this in the bottom 100 films of all time when it's, it's clearly just like a really generic mm -hmm. kind mm -hmm. of monster horror? So it's fine. It's just, it's it's completely forgettable, but the CG's okay. Um, Bob Gunton wears about 40 cardigans throughout this entire film, and it's no <laughs> wonder he's sweating. There's a scene where they keep on mentioning it being a heat wave, and then the camera will cut to Bob Gunton, who's like the, the evil sort of scientist behind these bats. And he's wearing everything he's wearing is woolen. His glasses are woolen, his contact lenses are woolen, his, his shoes are woolen. Like, you must be warm. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it follows all the usual beats of. Weirdly, there's no romantic subplot between Lou Diamond Phillips and Dina Meyer, which I was expecting. So that was a nice change because she's obviously like a complete screamer. Um, and she comes up with these ideas to sort of um, contain the bats and kill them. But then oh, they want to keep them alive. There is a moment in this film where, bear in mind, she is an expert that has dedicated her entire life to the study of bats. 
mm-hmm. and it takes mm-hmm. her until an hour and ten minutes into this film to say, "Oh, hang on, bats don't like the cold." <laughs> um, and I thought, I'm pretty sure that's got to be like in the early chapters of a book on like cropterology, <laughs> surely. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's a sequence when the the army go into like drop a bomb to blow up the sort of cave the bats are nesting in, and they turn up and they're all just dead because they went down there in the middle of the night when they're at their most active. And you think, has anyone anyone ever heard of bats before? Like anything, <laughs> like the basics, guys. Um, but yeah, the film is is cool, and but Leon's character is really irritating, constantly quipping and. Oh, he just wanted to just shut up. I was hoping he would be one of the first killed, but it wasn't to be, sadly. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's just a perfectly throwaway '90s horror. We've talked about this before, with the mid to late '90s being not an ideal period for horror films, especially when they rely on CG. But no. it, if if you've ever, I mean, I don't know how many people are going to be listening to this thinking, "Oh, I've always been thinking about watching Lou Diamond Phillips' Bats from 1999." <laughs> but yeah, it's it shouldn't be in the bottom 100 at all. It's perfectly serviceable slightly tedious film <laughs> bob gunton was in dead silence as well wasn't he yes yes he yeah. was in dead silence that's a good point he, he looks the same he's always looked the same yeah he's um, always looked about 60 and it's just the way he's always looked yeah yeah there is a sequence in this film where he claims that the, the he controls the bats and they listen to him and he mm-hmm. stands outside in the middle of the town and raises his arms and calls them to him and mm-hmm. it does not go as planned let me tell <laughs> so you they, they don't gently waft down and land on his, <laughs> on his <laughs> and land on his outstretched arms like a scarecrow yeah. and yeah and he commands them to do his bidding no it doesn't quite go like that oh, so he's not batman then that, that whittles <laughs> down the, sub, the suspects isn't it okay um Right. Well, I might watch that then. I mean, it sounds like it's on my street. I do. I I would still maintain that the 90s was not a great era for, for horror movies, but I still like watching them because um, I, I, I have nostalgia for the 90s. I'm fine with that. Absolutely fine with that. Even have some nostalgia for early CG in a certain way. In a oh, certain... so you're, you're going to watch Spawn tonight then, are you from 1997? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, shall we um, shall we move on to three men and a baby and three men and a little lady? Please do. I'll, I'll I'll wrap these into one because you know they're pretty closely related. Obviously, the first one in 1987. These are both on Disney Plus, by the way. Um, although the first one first one's also on Now TV. Obviously, um, the first one was directed in 1987 by yes Leonard Nimoy, as we all know, um, and the first one's surprisingly charming very gentle comedy uh i think the surprising thing for me is is just the the sharpness of the writing possibly because it's actually a remake of a french film um also from the 80s called three men in a cradle so it's got some kind of uh distinguishing features behind it yeah so the plot is pretty fast cool these three wealthy housemates are living together in new york one of them ted danson goes abroad to shoot a movie. He says that a package will be arriving when he, while he's gone. Um, one day, Tom Selleck returns home from a run to find a baby in a crib on the doorstep. And him and he and Steve Gutenberg basically struggle to care for the child. They don't know where it's come from or whatever. They, uh, they try and keep it alive, basically. And then they, of course, of course naturally fall in love with the baby. Turns out the baby was left by Ted Danson's ex, played by Nancy Travis. Um, there's also a subplot about a drug deal gone wrong, 
um, which throws some kind of gangster types into the mix. There's lots of kind of speaking at cross purposes kind of comedy here, very farcical. Um, anyway, Ted Danson finally returns to New York and he joins this parenting trio. Uh, and there are basically two showdowns, really, one with the gangsters and then one with Ted Danson's ex. Um, so <laughs> I did like in the, the very first scene of this film, I, I like how they're in no uncertain terms they are portraying the three housemates as heterosexual it's quite funny because it's like right let's say it's have no doubts about this they're not three gay guys living together so there's this parade of women just coming through their door um i think all too easily this film could have been a quite a crass gross out comedy but it's more of a comedy drama about a bunch of kind of responsibility free men being shocked into realizing that actually there are other things to life than just making money and having sex with women um and they're all good comic actors although naturally steve gutenberg is the the comic link yes yeah. uh and selick is very charming and uh, danson is really good at doing the kind of amusingly out of his depth stuff but it's very positive stuff um three men and a little lady Came a little bit later, obviously, and it was made in 1990, directed by Emile Ardolino, known for Dirty Dancing. I was Dancing. hoping you'd say William Shatner then, but never mind. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Um, so the kid is now five. The, uh, so the, and the three men and the mother have this apparently perfect setup. So they're all basically living with a loving mother and three adoring dads, and they're all throwing their way in. Um, but the mum... Uh, is looking for a husband. She wants more kids. This sleazy theatre director, played by Christopher Casanova, who's now dead, apparently. But, um, yeah, so this sleazy theatre director offers her basically what she's looking for. Uh, so she moves to England, of course. Um, now Tom Selleck's character is in love with her. And, and the other two dads miss the kids. So they go over to England to stop the wedding. Um, it, this film is not as good as the original. It, it really suffers badly from goldfish bowl syndrome, which is, as in, it's, it's a very Americanized perception of England. Like this Edward guy, the Christopher Casanova character, he literally lives in a mansion with a butler, and all of the wedding guests are kind of bumbling eccentrics, and England just looks like the railway children or something. Um, it, it's not. It, it's not filmed in Bradford then. <laughs> you know, it, what, what it reminds me of is that, that awful London storyline from Friends where they go over and, oh and they wheel God, out a yeah. load of, like, uh, a load of good British comedians, like, but written by, um, like, broad American writers, and it just looks awful, sounds awful. Yeah. It's that kind of thing. Tom Selleck is still good, and Gutenberg and Danson are, are pretty sidelined, to be honest. Although Jan, uh, Ted Danson does get a genuinely funny scene where he plays a vicar towards the end, and he has a weirdly good English accent. It's odd. Children oh. who would have thought. Good to know. Yeah. The problem is, is that it's really about the characterization. The the mother character, Nancy Travis, she is just a bit fickle and annoying because you realise everything that happens in these films is basically brought about by her really poor decision making. So you think about it in the first one. She abandoned her child. That was how 
that that's whole bad, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, that's that not good. Yeah. And in this one, because she just wants a husband and kids, she completely sacrifices her amazingly privileged life in New York, <laughs> takes her kid to like Edwardian England, and <laughs> hands her over to an abusive stepfather. It's astonishing. And the other problem is with the sequels, particularly, is that the kid is now five. Uh, now, and irritating. Well, well, that's the thing. You don't really ever see it. So in the first film, it didn't need to focus on the child because obviously she was a baby. So it's like, well, is there's going to be nothing. You're not going to get anything from her. So she can just be sort of uh, a tool for adult, the adult's comedy, if you see what I mean. This time around, she's obviously old enough to have her own personality, her own kind of whims and wishes. But she's basically ignored by the whole plot, especially by her mother. And she, she's she's too old to be used as a mere commodity by the her kind of village of parents if you like so there's a slightly uncomfortable feeling that she's just her anything that she wants is being completely ignored by these supposedly heroic characters so structurally the yeah the second film follows the same kind of uh, pattern as the original but it's not nearly as charming and funny um especially when it shifts away from New York. So I I would say if you have any inclination to watch either of these films, watch the first one and be done with it because the second one is such a weirdly like steep step down, except um, for Ted Danson at the end, and that's it. But it's not I, it. In my head, these films, um, Three Men and a Baby and Three Men and a Little Lady, are inextricably, inextricably, inextricably sorry, tied with uh, Look Who's Talking and Look Who's Talking To. So I'm hoping you're going to watch those next okay. as well. I forgot they even existed. Was there a mm. third one? Was there? Probably. They probably will. I think, it's too, I think it was yeah. called Jesus Christ Stop Talking, the third one. So... Um, <laughs> it was an anti-Christian film. Nothing to do with speaking dogs. Jesus um, Christ, you do go on. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, first one's good. Second one is not good. Well, I've got something that is not not good and maybe not good. So this is a 1981 film that is obviously on Prime called Ghost Keeper. And it's a bit of a bit of a background to this. Um, This was a Canadian film made in 1980. And it's set in a sort of snowy, snowy mountainous, um, like winter retreat lodge thing. Uh, But the production completely ran out of cash halfway through and instead of just packing up and knocking it on the head the director just just carried on without a script and you know without any kind of abilities and just just filmed stuff and kind of pieced it together when he got back home so i was because i'd never heard of it and an 80s horror i pretty even if you haven't watched them or you've heard of them haven't you but Mm -hmm this was something that's like apparently was lost and it's just um a few years ago it was kind of rediscovered and reissued on blu-ray i watched this on amazon prime and it is low quality like the footage is so grainy there's like a constant hiss throughout the film there's loads of visual artifacts on it it's and some scenes are just almost like great like obviously were pitch black so they've ramped up the contrast so you can see what's going on so it's got this like really really like miserable gray tint to it but it's got this weird lost horror charm it all kind of works in its advantage now to its advantage so the plot is much as it is three people one of whom looks like david braben uh go to 
<laughs> I like. I know exactly what he looks at. Like. Thing is, with David Braben, he's such an ordinary-looking man, and yet I just know his face. <laughs> so, so these three people—it's it's a dude and two women. They go to. They leave the sort of uh, winter lodge they're in, drinking with their friends to celebrate New Year's, and they go on snowmobiles and just drive out further than they should. Um, further than they were told by the old man who is basically um plays is it Carruthers the guy in um Scatman Crothers in in The Shining uh, yeah Scatman Crothers yes yes what's his character's name um oh god what is his name um come on you've seen that film at least twice I know I know I know um but anyway, there's yeah. this character who works in this sort of, um, you know, in this like local convenience store in the middle on the mountain in the middle of nowhere. It says, "Don't go too far into the woods because you'll just get lost. You will because it's just thick snow and forestry, and your tracks will be covered." So they obviously pay him no heed and just carry on and get lost. One of the snowmobiles breaks down, and they end up at this huge, weirdly closed hotel that they sort of not break into but force their way into, and just say we're just gonna have to like ride out the storm here um and it's a guy with his girlfriend and a third party who really shouldn't be with them she's just a sort of a, a ditzy blonde who clearly fancies the bloke and he is kind of falling for her um and it is at this point that i would say when they arrive at the hotel and it's all empty and they're just kind of wandering around basically passing time waiting to um for the snow the, the storm to pass so they can just go back to their their lodge that is the point when the film ran out of money. You you can tell because the opening is it's weirdly, it's a really pretty film. You know, it's like it's really quiet and it's got this really ambient music, this constant sort of throbbing ambient music, loads of loads of uh, panning shots of this beautiful scenery and these like really cold running rivers and stuff. Mm. And I was really I was kind of there. I was thinking, oh, that can imagine the cold. And and when they go to this hotel, it's all shot on location. So it's um, this, you know, it's it's actually there. They're wandering around with the kitchens and stuff. And there's a, an old woman there who's basically gone completely bonkers that sort of sets up the plot as it is. Mm. And I was really like, oh, this is kind of cool. And when the film runs out of money, it is very definite because <laughs> all of this kind of scene setting and ambience uh, to an admittedly threadbare plot just goes completely out the window and they just film whatever they can. There's... So what what it turns out is that it's based on the sort of Wendigo thing about, you know, someone who, um, an ancient Indian curse, someone has to eat human flesh to survive. And this woman who ran the hotel, her son has got it. She's got two sons. And one of them kills people for food for the other brother who they kind of lock in the basement. Mm. You see the monster once, right? And it's like a shot of him standing up and it's just a dude with like loads of hair glued to his face. But... But that shot is used about eight times in the film. So regardless of where they are, when they see this monster in the hotel, it's the same shot of him in the basement standing up. Absolutely fine. Absolutely do they, do they ever flip it horizontally or anything? Don't No, they don't even bother with that. They it's just there. It. Um, so it's got this weird like dreamlike charm, the first half. And the second half of the film is just... There's a scene where David Braben is in like a shed, like a, like a snowmobile shed. And he's ostensibly trying to find a part to fix this the snowmobile so they can go away and he just rubs a load of engine oil on his face and he's just then he grabs his girlfriend by the hair and just starts just repeating lines to the point that i thought 
have they mis-edited this? Is it like a load of cuts? Because he's just saying the same things over and over again. And they've just like, forgot to take the one take and just kept them all in. And then there's just shots of people just losing their minds for no reason and just wandering, wandering really slowly through the forest. And and then the end, there's a definite like end. Then it just shows a woman sipping tea for like five or six minutes. And I thought, <laughs> these are literally here to pad out the running time. But there was such, it's not, it's not frightening, but it was no. weirdly enjoyable because I thought it's kind of nice. It's got this release and it's not a bad film. It's, it's, it doesn't go bonkers it just gets like really quiet but the the sort of location is enough to think eh, it's pretty enough to look at for like 80 minutes it's fine but uh, <laughs> it's an odd odd film and i'm glad i watched it yeah. it's not good but it's a, a nice curio of the time where is it available again i think it was either amazon prime or shed i'm pretty sure it was oh, prime it's got to be one of the two i suppose ghost keeper um dick dick was his name Oh yeah, Dick Halloran. Yes, that's Dick it. Halloran. Yes, because uh, I, I, I had the name Grady in my head for so long, but then of course Grady is the <laughs> oh, two incarnations of the the kind of waiter guys in it. Um, so that's called the the Ghost Keeper. That's interesting. It sounds like a curiosity, one for horror enthusiasts. To I, I do like the idea of those kind of lost horror movies those really really strange horror movies the kind of thing that in pre-internet days you would have just put on late at night and this weird film would have come on you'd would have watched it and thought what on earth was that and yeah so yeah, it's, it's got it, a blu-ray release but then i suppose mm. it's it's a weird one because it from what i can see when because I, I was reading up about it as i was watching it there's only one one person who appears to be an actual actor of any note, uh, a Canadian woman who plays the the stranger woman who lives in the, in this old hotel, and everyone else involved didn't really do much else. So it's got that kind of, it feels a little bit special, you know, like a kind of weird one off that never quite made it. To be fair, I mean David Braben did pretty well. Yeah, he said, oh, do you know what? I'm going to make Elite, actually. I'm not going to be in any more Canadian horror films that don't get released for 40 years. <laughs> the thing, you know what I was saying about David Braben? Like, the fact that he looks so ordinary and yet I know his face. It's the same with um, it's the same with Peter Molyneux. Because Peter Molyneux looks like a dentist or an accountant. <laughs> and yet, I know his face so well. That's weird. Anyway. <laughs> um from there, we will move to Spiral, which is on Shudder. Uh, I think it's a Shudder original. It's a Canadian thriller from last year. Um, so this middle-aged gay couple move to the sticks with their teenage daughter, uh, and the neighbours seem weird. And one of the couple accuses the other of being oversensitive, you know, give them a chance and all that. Um, but then the younger one, uh, Malik, his name is, receives a kind of uh, like distressed warning from an old man who then mysteriously dies. And this leads Malik to kind of start peeling back the layers of the town's history. And it leads him to a horrifying and frankly quite ridiculous revelation about the town. The film has an undeniable air of a kind of gay get out except difference being that get out was smart and funny and surreal and all that stuff um the spiral really isn't any of those things it's 
it feels like a mashup of kind of home invasion and conspiracy thrillers from the 90s. It is actually set in the 90s as well. Although I think this is probably just a plot device to avoid mobile phones. And also, there's one scene where a character <laughs> ups for his computer files. So, uh, not even on floppy disk. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. CRT, this CRT going on in this movie. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, the, it's the real problem is, is that the main revelation is is so nonsensical and it takes up a huge portion of the back end of the movie just to explain it uh and as as we've talked about before the more exposition that is required uh to explain a twist the weaker the twist is it should a twist should really be something which is revelatory in the moment it shouldn't have to be explained in great detail to kind of justify itself so it really doesn't work, which is a pity because, I mean, it's quite, I mean, the Malik is played by um, Jeffrey Bowyer Chapman. He's he's a really good screen presence and he does carry the movie pretty well. And uh, I mean, it's it's reasonably well directed in a in a kind of brown filter, David Fincher like kind of way. But it just it isn't sharply written enough to have any lasting effect. And the the convoluted plotting just absolutely kills it you know because it it, because it it rests so heavily on the the revelation about the town and about what's really going on um and yet it's doesn't make any sense and it's completely unbelievable and it's like why well i get what they're doing but why would they do that how does that serve the purpose how does that serve the purpose of this town that it doesn't make any sense so yeah it's not very good unfortunately it's a pity but but, yeah but the guy the main guy in it he seems he seems like he could you know have some quality if he's just given a better script and this that was spiral spiral and that's on shudder of course it is um well uh, i've actually got one now we've had a couple of uh mid-ranges so i'm going to talk about 1971's wake and fright which i've been meaning to watch for a very long time and mm-hmm. i finally got around to it and i really enjoyed it it's such <laughs> it's such a sort of dismal film <laughs> it's just a really bright and yet dismal film yeah. um I, I know you've seen this uh I have. but so this is a film about um gary well gary bond the actor is such a handsome like buff man who is basically like a british well was like a british robert redford really yeah um, he's got a bit of the young peter o'toole about him he's got that kind of like very very pretty kind of almost pure look about him in a way well like peter o'toole circa 1991 <laughs> less so <laughs> yes <laughs> peter i think he had a drink at one point i can't remember yeah. Yeah, I, I remember once he said, oh, do you know what? I'm going to have a can of Shandy Bass at one point. Yeah, uh, I'm going to have a, a, some Ben Shaw's Dandelion and Burdock. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, John Gra- uh, Gary Bond plays uh, a, a guy called John Grant, who's a teacher in the middle of the Australian outback. 
and it's explained early in the plot that how it works is you pay a thousand dollars to sort of travel from England to to, to teach English uh, in the outback, but you have no control of where they send you, and you're stuck there for three years. So he is in the middle of nowhere, um, just basically passing time uh, in a place called Tabunda before he can go back home. And he sort of is going to, at the start of the film. He's it's a I think it's a six week break in the school year. And he wants to travel to Sydney to be reunited with his girlfriend, but ends up getting stuck in a place called the Yabba and accidentally gambling away his money. And from then on, it's just a massive downward spiral of just boozing and unpleasantness and just just complete squalor. Um, I, I didn't I had no idea what to expect in this. I thought it was like an out and out horror. Ew. But but it's more people drink in this film, Rupert. <laughs> There's a guy, a guy called obviously called Chips Rafferty, and he is caning pints in this film. And you think, and it's so sweaty and warm, and the pubs are just so cramped. And um, it, like obviously Donald Pleasance is in there, good. Of course, you, you need an Australian alcoholic. Boom, get Donny Boy in there. Um, and yeah, it it just tickles me how how quickly that John Grant goes from sort of sneering down his nose at these people who are supposedly below him in the in the outback to just being so below them that he's literally just sponging off them and just following mm. them around and drinking in this kind of like booze dream. There's a famous sequence in it, um infamous yeah. sequence rather, with, with mm. the kangaroo hunting, which was actually real. And I fast forwarded that bit because it's it's just it, it was it was just animal cruelty. I understand the point yes. they were making. But I, I just when I saw the first, you know, when they're like running over them and shooting them and mm-hmm. laughing at them and kicking them, I'm like, I get the point, but I don't really want to watch this. So I, I did skip a uh, pack. It goes on for about five, ten minutes as well. Yeah. Uh, skip past that bit. Um, but yeah, I really liked it, and I can see why it's such a, such a sort of a hallmark of a film because there's very little like it. It's such a, like a degeneration into alcoholism. It's such yeah. so. I, I, that's that's how I feel about it as well. Like you uh, hit the nail on the head, really. It's, there's nothing else like it. I can't think of another film which is deals with the same. Well, with I suppose there are films in the same kind of setting, but nothing which just so directly deals with just al- like a culture of alcoholism in the outback. That's really what it's about. It's just about yeah. really hard boozes in the outback, and it's and it it's so dark and so sweaty. It's nothing yeah. else quite like it and donald pleasance is such a sad character in this film the doc, yeah a doc he just it's really him because he's he's obviously like sort of um well he the one point in the film he says that you know i i would not be allowed to practice medicine back home but out here my alcoholism is barely even noticed because yes. everyone does it it's like they drink because there's nothing else to do it's like a charles bukowski book and it, it's when 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 they're just boozing and then he, he like there's a few moments when he wakes up and he has a moment of kind of clarity and he's like right i've got i've got to get out of here i've got to sort myself out and then someone says ever drink mate and then that's it that's that day gone <laughs> like and it's just it's so depressing and yeah it's just constant and it's not like one of those films where you know you watch someone drinking like oh, i fancy a bourbon now you see these sweaty unpleasant people with their hair plastered to their heads drinking in like horrible lager in in shacks like just pounding back can after can you think this is just buzzing this is uh, this is like something in merthyr I, <laughs> so, I wonder if the yeah i the the film's title obviously wake and fright make does make it sound like it's a horror film because it's quite a, like a creepy title 
in itself. But I wonder if it's more to do with, like you said, like the amount of times he kind of wakes up and there is that tiny window of clarity uh, that I feel rough, but I I have to get my life in order. I have to I have to get out of this cycle of just misery um, before someone says, you know, let's have a drink, mate. And it's like, Yeah. yeah, so it's almost like the fright it's referencing is the kind of horror of seeing the world as it really is before you kind of start self-medicating to get rid of the misery. And yet that just pushes you into further and further deep down into misery. So it's not the jolliest film, but it is completely unique and it has to be seen really because there's nothing else quite like it. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, we've talked before about how we both really like films set on sort of, um, you know, American Mexican border and those sort of uh, dusty desert towns with the small stories and this is like that but just removed to the outback so you've still got yeah. that wonderful um the wonderful visuals and the landscape yes. with such an unpleasant story within it yeah um, um obviously it's directed by ted kocheff who did um first blood um, oh yeah of course and weekend at bernie's naturally why wouldn't he of course of course well i i would have guessed that <laughs> I would also guess he probably didn't go on to do the sequel. <laughs> um, right, so from Wake and Fright to Black Box, which is on Prime, this is one of the first films in the Bloomhouse deal with Amazon. They've got a few films now, I think four. Um, Bloomhouse to Jason Bloomhouse. They've done a deal with Amazon to make films for their service. This one had the highest star rating, so I gave it a go. It's about a guy who's lost his memory after an accident. Uh, the accident, this accident which killed his wife. So he's lost his memory after this accident. His daughter is trying to help him regain his memories, but he's really struggling. So he signs up for an experimental therapy. It's um, it's sort of a, a bit like the device in Tarsam Singh's The Cell, the one with um, Jennifer Lopez, uh, where... Oh, yeah where a machine basically plugs him into his memories and he can walk around in them sort of thing. But they're pretty twisted memories. From there, he hopes to kind of re-experience his memories and rebuild them because they're only partly um, they're only partly formed. Now, obviously, there are secrets down there. Uh, and it turns but it turns out that the, the doctor who's uh, treating him, who's played by uh, Felicia... Rashad, uh, who's Will Smith's mum from The Fresh Prince, looking exactly the same as she ever has. Um, she has this ulterior motive. Um, and basically now he has this serious case of split personality and he's fighting for his life and to reclaim his own identity. Um, it's sort of a, a sci-fi-ish horror that starts out very strongly. Um, the main guy, whose name is Nolan, he's played by Mamadou Ati who I know from a very good little film called Patty Cakes. And he has this slightly haunted demeanor and a very, very understated acting style, which does suit his character well in this because he's obviously someone with amnesia. So that makes sense. Um, And his, his initial kind of dives into his memories are actually quite disturbing because when he goes there, no one has a face. Um, They're all kind of like, the faces are all smeared out and there's this genuinely creepy horribly contorted man who follows him around but kind of all twisted like all his limbs are broken so that's 
and his bones are constantly cracking and that's that's quite creepy so all that stuff mm, is creepy. yeah it does sound creepier but you're right yeah yeah <laughs> yes um however much like spiral actually the film has a kind of twist halfway through where the interest level does i wouldn't say falls off a cliff um but it does shift in terms of its style and tone and plausibility and it it basically i I was kind of primed for some a deep existential horror movie but the twist makes it into much more of a kind of psycho thriller which so maybe i need to see it again with that in mind because i think maybe i'd i would have less of a feeling of uh and more of a feeling of oh so um i think with with spiral the twist was so absurd um and nonsensical that it just completely crushed the film in this it's i think it's almost the opposite problem like the it almost is a little bit too mundane um it it feels like an episode of black mirror this does okay very much like so i suppose if you are a fan of black mirror then this may well be up your street um uh, the um the doctor carrier felicia richard's character is she's basically stuck in a cycle of explaining the plot to the main guy and staring in amazement at computer screens so she doesn't get much of a role um but i'd say it's just about worth watching mostly for the performance of the main guy and because you may get more mileage out of it with knowing that it's not exactly what the first half promises i kind of feel like you get these films about mind-blowing kind of sci-fi technology and i it just it's always a bit disappointing when they they're not mind-blowing in themselves if you see what i mean like it's just uh, yeah yeah it's just a kind of so so thriller really in the end um so it's really it's about managing expectations with this one it is a better film than spiral (laughs) and definitely black mirror-esque um but just keep in mind that it it is just pretty much a regular thriller and you should be able to get some enjoyment out of it so it's not bad it's a six out of ten this uh, oh we're doing that now we are right (laughs) so uh, there was i remember there was like a french amiga magazine that used to review games out of 400 and, and you're like what what uh, how would you come there if you give something 312 a developer said so how can i get 313 then uh, so oh well yeah so the pixel on that one anyway um this actually ties on really nicely um to what you were just talking about with that sort of twisty thriller this is a film a japanese film from 2016 called creepy um and the plot is that there's a, a, a sort of criminal profiler called Koichi uh, is is retired from his job or changes jobs to going to lecturing because of an injury. And he moves with his wife into this sort of suburban home in Japan. And he has a really strange neighbor that's probably one of the best characters in the film. And he gets dragged back by his old colleague into a cold case involving a whole family that were killed one survivor um a woman called saki who uh he's he sort of they, he gets dragged back into interrogating to try and solve this case um i had a problem with this film from the start because w- w- what happens is <laughs> the introduction sequence is this the main guy koichi who is the mm-hmm. profiler that then becomes a lecturer 
and he is seen as this sort of maverick uh and we see two or three cases of him interviewing people and like studying cases and he's just crap at his job um like really crap like at the start he's interviewing a serial killer like an openly a serial killer who's admitted killing all these people and is like super intelligent and he kind of talks to him and is uh koichi talks to him and is just like really smug and then this guy breaks out kills a load of people and puts has got like a sharpened fork and he's taken a woman hostage and then this guy koichi just walks up to him and the killer says oh can you turn around and he says yes i will because i trust you and the killer basically calls him a dickhead and just stabs him in the kidneys and nearly kills him so that's what the injury that leads to him leaving his job right because he was bad at it and then his old <laughs> colleagues says, oh you know this cold case these this missing family we need you this um we need you, your skills yeah. so the first thing he does is go to this woman and then really roughly interrogate her really like awkwardly until she just runs out of the room in tears and i said mm-hmm. you're not good you're not good at your job but the whole <laughs> film seems to think that he is anyway so it's, so- got, it's got a bit of the blade runner syndrome yeah, a touch it's of the Harry. Not good at his job, and just touch of the Harry. Yeah, <laughs> and you just like get to. So, and he just is bad at his job, and he's his neighbor is uh, who's the best character in the film. Um, is this really weird looking kind of blank stared guy in his like fifties who's kind of really um like a really grizzled face, and every time we we see him, he he's got like a, almost like a different personality, because the, his wife is trying to um sort of get in with the neighbors and, and you know giving them chocolates and they're all really cold towards her but this one guy this neighbor um what's his name um nishima i think his name is uh says is is like instantly really dismissive of her and then the next time she sees him he's like really friendly and you, you can tell there's something going on with him yeah there's a twist in the film uh when that we're well, not so much a twist when 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 the film kind of reveals its hand to the audience i thought without spoiling this because it's obviously only four years old I thought, well, okay, that's what you said is the cause of these these missing cases. That's fine. But you're going to need to explain that. You're going to need, you can't just say, right, that's that, and this is mm. how the plot moves forwards from now on. And it doesn't. And I found that really problematic. Um, and where, even when it comes to the end of the film, I was kind of left waiting for it to sort of explain this this one individual's ability and function and it doesn't mm. and i i was just thinking that just seems like really lazy writing like oh yeah by the way this person can do this and you're like uh, right yeah okay um so but that the, the 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 neighbor character is the most interesting character because he is genuinely like creepy and he's creepy but at the same time really oddly amiable and kind of smiling like a little bit blank yes uh, so I, I did enjoy that side of it also it's got one of my favorite gagging sequences in a film as well. Um, the Koichi, the, the lecturer, there's one point where he goes, it's ridiculous, right? He goes, this family, right, has gone missing. So this 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 nondescript sort of house that is a kind of tenement block in Japan. And he goes to this house, uh, opens the front door, breaks his way in to this mm. crime scene. And instantly he starts gagging because there's bodies in there that have just been put in a cupboard. And it's like, why, why wouldn't the police have found those? Why wouldn't the police have found an entire dead family? Like it would have been searched, just boarded up. So that's a ridiculous plot point. But anyway, it goes on for a few minutes, right? He's obviously trying to get to the, the, the cause of this smell. And it is the best 
gagging sequence I've ever seen. Because, of course, the whole film, because it's like a Japanese thriller, it's very po-faced. Everyone is, like, quite cold and, like, you know, um, set-featured. The second he opens the door to their house, he is gagging. And he's, like, he's not just, like, you know, in, in films where people like go into a room where there's a corpse and they kind of they kind of cover their nose and they're like, "Oh, yeah. mm, what's Ooh, that that's smell?" A, that's slightly pungent. Yeah. The door, he's like, <coughs> <laughs> and, then, and like, and <laughs> like it's properly hit in the back of his throat, <laughs> and and like try, trying to like cover his nose and like his mouth just and not being able to do it. I was laughing. It's and it's so good. Is um, it as good as the gagging sequence in uh, Dumb and Dumber, where? He's just saying goodbye to the woman with Jim Carrey saying goodbye to the woman. And he's so heartbroken that he actually starts gagging. <laughs> I'm like rotating his neck. Like yeah. rotating. Yeah. It's, 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 I wouldn't say it's as comedic as that, but it's on a par. It's, it's like the dramatic version of that gag. Right, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's worth a watch and i think maybe if some people watch it and they're willing to just sort of give themselves to that plot point that i was i found so problematic they'll probably just completely gonna board it because the acting is great and i really liked how because it was set in sort of suburban japan i found it genuinely interesting like how how the houses are set up and mm. the culture with, with the neighbors and i really enjoyed that it was almost like a little insight into japanese culture that i really liked it I was just yeah, i love that stuff when you see like a movie from a, you know a completely different culture which isn't just trying to ape sort of hollywood movies but actually takes you into some sort of very yeah, like the, real like life the, kind of there's lots of like, meal times in this yeah yeah the neighbors over and the sort of the culture and the and you know how they how people carry themselves and i was really enjoying that and i enjoyed the acting and i enjoyed the mood of it but it was just the the, the main plot i was a bit iffy with so what's it called creepy Creepy, yeah. And I uh, think that was on Shudder. Okay. Are you okay. making a note of that? I, I may I may watch that. That sounds intriguing. I do need I need to watch some more foreign language um horror. I really do. So um, what's it called? Monstrum was the other one you mentioned? Yeah, that was the South Korean yeah, film. I yeah. need to watch that. Yeah, so they're both on my list. Okay, um, well, let's move on to something uh, uh, quite serious, which is called uh, What Killed Michael Brown. This is a documentary, which you don't often have on Um It's a documentary by, uh, this is on Prime, and we'll come to that in a minute, but this is a documentary by uh, this author and filmmaker called Shelby Steele. So... Michael Brown, the Michael Brown in the title. Michael Brown was a, a he was a black teenager shot by police in Ferguson in Missouri in 2014. And you might remember there was uh, a lot of uh, unrest and violence in the city after after that in Ferguson. And um, famously, it's sort of the initial eyewitness statement said that uh, Michael Brown was executed in cold blood by a cop. But it later turned out in court that they lied and actually Michael Brown had tried to take the cop's weapon, then run away. And then he turned around and charged at the cop and he'd been shot at that point. Anyway, so the documentary isn't a forensic examination of the incident, but rather it's an exploration of why African-American communities in the U.S. are so impoverished and why uh, violent crime is so disproportionately high in those communities. And hence it goes on to explain why cops shooting black men is depressingly common as we've seen in 2020 
Um, so Shelby Steele, he's a very interesting guy because he is he's an old he's in his mid 70s African-American guy and he's lived through much of what he is describing. He obviously has first hand experience of racial segregation, the Jim Crow laws, civil rights movement and all that. And of course, he's lived through it all as a black man. Um, and his his basic <coughs> thesis, right, is that it was he goes back back in time and he um, he he's basically saying that the the US government's response to the civil rights movement of the 60s was well intentioned, but actually ended up plunging African-American people into this crushing cycle of generational poverty through cheap housing, excessive welfare, um, which incentivized fatherlessness. And he's done his research. I mean, it includes the quite remarkable fact that at the time that these laws were brought in, single parent black homes were approaching 25%, which is pretty bad. That's a quarter of black homes without a, uh, with a single parent, usually a mother, obviously. Mm. Um, today, that figure is about 75 percent wow and so yeah so you know these are pretty stark figures so it is a documentary that has attracted a fair amount of controversy um because uh, to put it mildly amazon were a bit funny about its distribution and they actually seem to ban it entirely um somehow shelby still came to an agreement and it's now available but it was it it was a bit odd and i'm not really sure i don't think it should be controversial because yeah just before we sound it sounds like it's yeah. based on facts it's not like an opinion it's, piece so no it's yeah, not it's not and and i think it's i and and what yeah it's facts and it's nuance as well and it's giving some historical context and he feels like a a, a you know a steady pair of hands like this is someone who's lived through all all of these periods and he's backing up his claims with evidence in historical inquiry and he's not it's not that he's entirely debunking the claims of systemic racism that we hear now but rather he's he, what he's doing is he's focusing it on class and poverty and how certain portions of society are unfairly affected um i just think perhaps the controversy is because it's just a bit too fresh for and um and counter argumentative for modern mainstream tastes especially where the parts he does lay out a lot of the differences between the civil rights movement of the 60s and the black lives matter kind of writing of today and uh, america obviously has never felt so divided and this is a film which brings quite a calm approach to the subject and fair share of nuance it, and in in the fact that it's kind of calm and nuanced and very objective it feels weirdly dangerous in a way but it does feel like an important film if only as his counterpoint to the frankly rather vague assumption of systemic racism because he's he's basically saying there is systemic inequality baked into the system and this has led to this brutalizing generational cycle. Um, it just what he's not doing is following the whole the kind of white supremacy narrative that we hear a lot about. So I think it's a really interesting film and it should be seen because mm. it really does give it an interesting little lesson in actually how 
I, I just find it really interesting that, that at the time with the civil rights movement, obviously that completely changed the world and for the better, it should have been, but the response to it in terms of the uh, kind of economic policies that were put in place actually plunged um, poor communities, largely African-American communities into, well, generational poverty. And, you know, you had these situations where it was so incentivized for there not to be a father in the home that even with two parent families, what would happen is social services would come around and the father would be hiding in a cupboard in order for them to get the welfare. And it's just insane. Anyway, so, yeah, and so it's pretty interesting. So it's well worth a watch. It's called What Killed Michael Brown. That does sound interesting. And what I'm about to say kind of ties in with that because I watched um, a film called His House. Um, I watched this on Halloween after your amazing horror quiz, which hashtag I won. And that was a really good quiz, by the way. That has to happen every day now, I'm afraid. We had two amazing quizzes that night, didn't we? (laughs) It was absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. Um, So, yeah, um, his house, I, as you know, Rupert, I shy away from like really heavy duty films and I tend to just watch <laughs> bollocks horrors. <laughs> and um, when I saw his house, I literally watched a trailer of it, thought it was a haunted house film and <laughs> said to Faye, oh, let's check it on this Halloweeny kind of trashy horror. Mm. It is not. It is not. <laughs> it is about refugees escaping war torn Sudan and trying to, to sort of adjust to a life in a northern English foul town. And oh you were Darth Ford. I was Darth Ford. Yes, of course. Um, I was I Darth Ford myself on this occasion. And if, I stuck if with anyone it. doesn't get that reference. <laughs> I this know. is because when we were doing our action movie nights, uh, our friend Chris would always bring along a, a Yui Ball film. And of course, Yui Ball is famous for making trashy video game adaptations, etc. And so he brought around one by Yui Ball called Darth Ford. And it was about the <laughs> genocide in Darfur. It's a really hard-hitting film about about horrendous violence and rape. So persecution uh, and yeah, and child abuse. And it was we were like expecting to watch Alone in the Dark too with Lance Henriksen. So basically, so it, that this has come into the vocabulary that if you <laughs> think you're going to watch one thing and it turns out to be something much much harsher and more depressing and more thought provoking. <laughs> That's known as being Darfur. Yeah, and it should make its way into the common lexicon, really. It is Darfur. So, yes, I Darfur myself. And normally, if I was by myself, I would have thought, oh, this isn't this isn't my thing. But it, it was it is. It's clearly a good film. And it's clearly it, it feels like a, a bit of an important one as well. So I, I stuck with it and I was in the wrong frame of mind to watch this film. It was Halloween. I wanted something throwaway and, and sort of, you know, slash-tastic, and it is much more thought-provoking than that. So, um, yeah, so uh, Bol and Riel are um, a couple that escape in sort of under uncertain circumstances from South Sudan, and they are given housing in, I think it's somewhere up north. I don't think it's in London. It seems a bit, it seems dismal. So I assume Burnley. it's up the north of England. So. <laughs> Burnham on Sea. Apparently that's a really nice area. Um, see, um, um, Doc, Matt Smith is in the Doctor Who. Matt Smith is the mm-hmm. sort of housing housing association uh, contact from that gives them this house. And the house is just a shithole. It's oh. just, it's on like, a, obviously on accounts of the state with loads of crap in the garden and there's like no wallpaper it's horrible there's a stained mattress they clearly haven't cleaned it from the previous occupants because there's like pizza boxes filled with cockroaches and stuff in there and the whole film is 
whilst they're being haunted by this sort of presence that they're trying to understand and get to the bottom of, they're trying to integrate into British life. And whilst they're, while they're living in this sort of squalor, um, they, they, every time they're told about like a, a real, like sort of problem with the, the basic, you know, hygiene and functions of the house, they're just kind of told, well, you should be lucky for what you get. Um, and so it's like, well, so because we're refugees, we're just happy to just not be in a shed then without a roof. <laughs> and, and, um, yeah, it's, it is, it's full on. It's full on, not in the way I thought it would be, because there are moments, for example, when, um, ball, the, 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 the male is, is trying to sort of ingratiate himself into English culture. And he gets like called into a pub by like a load of white guys watching football. And I was thinking, oh, don't, don't, don't. And then it goes a different way, and you're like, oh, okay. And then yeah. there's a bit where um, uh, his wife is trying to go to a, to a doctor's appointment, and she gets lost in this kind of labyrinthine, in, like sort of a council estate, and she goes up to a group of like um, black kids and to ask for directions, and that doesn't go as you think it would. And it, it's full of these sort of neat little twists, just sort of taking your expectations and changing them a little bit. Oh, nice. Um, and the the main that is a weird kind of that side of it was was quite tense um and when it comes to the actual sort of haunted housey part of of it that's almost treated as a sort of separate thing and that's quite mm. full on as well um it's not an out and out horror it's more of like a like a drama i would say um okay but the way that the trailer presents it is much more like a straight haunted house film but just to be aware of people going in it is not it's good but just prepare yourself for something a bit deeper than just a hammer moving slightly on a shelf prepare to be darford <laughs> prepare to be darford yes so yeah it's, it's a good film it just i wasn't yeah. in the right frame of mind i have heard good things about it um but yeah i didn't realize how full on it was to be honest but that sounds like an interesting twist on the kind of ghost story yeah. tropes i guess if matt smith's eyes were any closer together one of them would have to propose marriage that's <laughs> what i took away from it he'd basically be the cyclops from Krull. <laughs> yeah so that was his house okay uh, on netflix sorry right um the sixth sense uh we wanted to watch this so we had to pay for it on prime but it's actually yeah it was like 3.99 to buy it so that's all right. Um, 8K so, or? Sorry? Was it 8K or? <laughs> well, they call it. Mm, this is the thing, right? Because I'm not really one for buying stuff digitally because you're buying something to then stream it. So even if you buy it in like 4K or whatever, I'm not even sure it's available in 4K, but um, you, you're basically, you're limited by whatever this, you know, whatever bandwidth you happen to have at the moment. So you'll still get pixelation and stuff in certain scenes. So um, I know you can download them temporarily or whatever, but still. Anyway, Sixth Sense. This was, it was a bit of a cultural event movie, really, wasn't it? In the late 90s. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it did usher in a spate of twist movies, in large part because I think there was something inherently profitable about a film that demands to be seen twice. I don't think that's what M. Night Shyamalan was thinking. I think he was just trying to make a really emotionally engaging horror thriller about a mother and her disturbed child. Um, it's set in Philadelphia, 
lots of looming gothic architecture and it's about a nine-year-old kid called cole played by Haley joel osmond who sees ghosts he is assisted by a child psychologist played by bruce willis um the child psychologist he used to be good at his job until one day one of his patients came back as an adult and shot him ever since his marriage has been falling apart and his skills are on the wane uh anyway as as cole's relationship with his mother fractures um he and um brucey boy they develop a close bond not least because brucey boy believes him that he can see ghosts so anyway it's just a question of whether Cole can overcome his fear of the ghosts and actually give them the help that they need to move on to the next plane of existence, if you like. Um, it, Sixth Sense, it features Shyamalan's best twist, although it does slightly bother me that it's, it is a film that's often defined solely by the twist, because yeah. I really think, like any good twist movie, it could stand on its own two feet without the twist, um, because... It's really about the relationship between Cole, the kid, and his mum, which is really, really brilliantly. It's very sympathetically portrayed. She's a working class single mum who could really do. Yeah, it is Tony Collette. And um, she could really do without his behavioural issues, basically. But her love for him never wavers. And she is amazing in it, Tony Collette. Um, It's also a pretty scary film when it finally gets around to it. Uh, The pacing isn't the quickest, I wouldn't say, but Shyamalan really knows how to maximise impact. And he is, he's a precocious craftsman. I mean, he was still in his 20s when he made this film, so it's pretty impressive. Um, I like how we share Cole's experience of moving from this abject fear towards empathy. And it means that the last few scenes are genuinely quite emotionally affecting. And there's a scene with the car in the car with his mum near the end, which is just a complete masterclass from Tony Collette. And that is basically is what I consider the climactic showdown. It's just a conversation between two people. And and there are, but there are people, amazingly, who've not seen Sixth Sense and don't know the twist. And I think it's more interesting if you keep it that way. But I would say it's not essential. So even if you did find out the twist, then it wouldn't be a game changer because the beating heart of the film is the kid and his mum really and if you just watch it as this what is it an an intelligent and creepy thriller um then it's great and it's a reminder that bruce willis's best work was done with m night Shyamalan, and is behind him and is well behind him (laughs) uh i yeah i do um i've seen uh, Sixth Sense. It is a film I fancy rewatching because I, I've got a feeling it is a film I watched in uh, um, surroundings that weren't the best. I think I was like at a at a party or something oh. and it was on, so yeah, I want I want to watch it again. Um, it, it, will... Watching it so close to the Babadook as well because I also watched that quite recently and um, and it is interesting because it's very they're very similar in terms of really being about this relationship between a mother and the child and it's really full on uh, and harsh and you do really feel for them. It is. Uh, it reminds me when I talk about just a little sort of side thing about this, when I used to work in the video store, um, there was on the subject of twists. I remember when fight club was coming out and because you, I missed like the, the preview copy that we had, I, I 
because obviously we didn't get one because we knew we were going to buy it because it was such a big release. And the staff at the time had to wait two weeks from a film's release before they could book it out themselves. And I remember waiting two weeks to get Fight Club to take it home and watch it. And there was an old woman who rented it. And as she dropped it off, she said, I said, oh, yeah, I'm actually watching this tonight. I've been waiting two weeks to watch this. And she slid the, the video across the table to me and said, oh, it's a really good film. You'd never guess they were the same person. And, and I just watched her walk out and thought, thanks. So it completely <laughs> ruined it for me. Um, so, yeah, bitch. <laughs> but, yeah, if you're listening to this, yeah, bitch. Um, but, yeah, it's so I think it is one of those films, like you say, it's, it is of a quality and, and it does stand up beyond the. T- We've talked about this today with the films you mentioned that if a film relies upon the twist and then when the twist happens, it's like a deflating balloon farting into the night. You're like, oh, okay. But it's nice that it, it hold, keeps you emotionally engaged until the very end. Yeah. I, I see the twist in Sixth Sense is just, um, it's like DLC or something. It's just a bonus, really. <laughs> Like that's, it means down, you can, that's downloadable content. Uh, so, uh, it means you can watch it again with a different perspective. Yes, great. But it doesn't it if it didn't have that twist, it would still be a good movie. I am now going to talk about what is clearly and without question my film of the week. Um okay. uh, that is William Peter Blatty's nineteen eighty masterpiece. The Ninth Configuration. Um, I, I don't think you've seen this, have you? I don't believe I have, no. Well, this is a film where I was kind of reversed our forward, because if you look at all of the, the promotional stuff, all of the all the different covers, the original title was Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane uh, before being retitled to The Ninth Configuration. It's described as a, like a, a psychological horror or drama. It is not. Right? It is just not. It's it's. I thought before watching the Ninth Configuration that the biggest film I've ever seen with like a definitive where a film is almost cut in half and there's a tonal shift as was from Dust Till Dawn, where you've mm. got like the sort of gangster stuff at the start and then boom, yeah. it's a vampire horror. That is nothing compared to the Ninth Configuration. <laughs> there's nothing. It can be swept under the carpet and dismissed. The first 45 minutes to an hour uh, is like broad comedy. And then the latter half is like musing on existence and religion. Um, and I absolutely loved it. So do, do you know much about this film? Not really, no. My my knowledge of William Peter Blatty doesn't go beyond what well, obviously The Exorcist. Exorcist. And of course, the fact that he directed Exorcist 3, which has got one of the best scare scenes in horror history. Which I need to watch. I think, it's, is it Jason Miller who plays Father Karras? I think so. Yeah. Um, He's in this film. Brad Dourif is in the third one as well. The, anyway, cast of this, the cast of this film is amazing, right? You've got Scott Wilson, um, who obviously we is was he's passed away now, but was mainly known for the Walking Dead films. Stacy Keach is the main psychiatrist. Jeez. Jason Miller, who's Father Karras, Ed Flanders, who was the most amazing hair I've ever seen. Like jet black curly hair, and then just grey side he's good. Um it's got uh, Moses Gell, isn't it? Robert Loggy, isn't it? Joe Spinell, Tom Atkins. I was in heaven. My trousers were nowhere to be seen. Every time anyone introduced themselves, they were gone. So the, the, it's, the, the film is presented. The opening is amazing. Faye kind of lost interest. Like I said, the reverse Darfur comes in because I thought this was going to be like a real sort of gothic horror. And when it opens, it's got this ridiculous folk song that's kind of 70s like singer-songwriter. You... Mm waiting for me with this like plucked acoustic guitar uh, and 
over these like sort of swooping aerial shots of this clearly medieval castle with these huge turrets and parapets in like completely ensconced in this thick fog in the middle of a forest so it's it's like it's Look, it's like what? So this song goes on for like the full length of the song, and <laughs> I'm just watching just shots of this like castle, which they say is in like northwestern America, a castle, a medieval castle in a country that's about <laughs> five minutes old. It's fine, totally fine. Um, and we see that it's it's like a basically a a, a military asylum. And Scott Wilson is kind of the head, the kind of leader of the inmates, if you like, um, uh, called Billy Cutshaw. And he's a he's an astronaut who aborted a moon launch, uh, a moon launch, a rocket launch as it was happening and just supposedly totally lost his mind. And the the inmates are kind of running riot. And Stacy Keach turns up as the newly assigned psychologist to. Uh, who's there to try and sort of gain some sort of order, but his approach appears to be just to let them live out their kind of, their madness, just to see, just to sort of study it and let them roam free effectively and then and then obviously deal with it when he fully understands it. Um, Stacey Keach is amazing in this film. He, there's so much just complete madness going on around him in this in this ridiculous setting of like this huge gothic castle, which is just a military asylum. And He's just he just stares at people and just with his amazing like sort of deep rumbling voice, just just talks to them like really normally. It's like mm. the most deadpan comedy you can imagine. It's fantastic. Um it's hard it's hard to describe some of the funniest bits in this film without without giving them away, because some actually act as sort of like little plot points. There's a scene in I'll do a couple just to give you it's so funny. There's a bit of the start where um, Scott Wilson's just completely balmy running around and stuff and <laughs> Stacy Keach is just sat working in the night and it's like it's a storm outside and he's sat in this like in this ridiculous office and the stone walls around him and he's just like writing on the patient notes and Scott Wilson just boots open the door and just comes like f- sort of frog marching in with flippers on a really bright 1950s like sort of swimming costume with snorkels and flippers and stuff and says I want to go to the beach and Stacy Keach just sort of stares at him and really quietly says, but it's night and it's raining. And Scott Wilson sort of <laughs> sighs and says, I see you're determined to start an argument. And it's <laughs> constant exchanges that literally could not be improved upon. Um, there's a bit where Stacy Keach is just in his office and he has a, like a banging, like someone hitting stonework. And he comes out and one of the inmates is just like hitting a wall with a hammer constantly. And he comes down and sort of says, well, what are you doing? And he, and he says, well, I can actually walk through walls. Um, I, I can adjust my atoms and pass through, like shift them so they completely mingle with the atoms in the wall and I can pass through. But this wall isn't letting me do it. It's being naughty. And so I'm going to hit it with a hammer until it relents and I can walk through it. And Stacy says, can you give me the hammer so I can study it further? And the guy goes to give him the hammer and he says, yes, yes, of course, a fellow scientist. And as he hands him the hammer, he kind of snatches it back and says, hang on, you're not going to play with it, are you? And it's just, and Stacey Keach is like, what? no, it's amazing. It's these amazing exchanges. And I was literally shaking with laughter and it goes on and on. And then about halfway through, um, I'm not going to give, even though this is a 40 year old film, I'm giving nothing away. It changes tact. And it stops being funny, and it's more about a study of, of um, you know, the situation reveals itself more, and it's more about um, it gets sort of a, into 
pretty deep conversations about existentialism and religion. And there's a scene in a bar, which was one of the best bar fights I've ever seen. Um, and it goes from like making you just completely laugh and it, and it, you kind of forget you're watching what's supposed to be a horror. And then when it brings back in the sort of um, the deeper subject matter, you're, you're sort of um, a bit raw to it, a bit more exposed to it because you've been laughing at these characters for so long that it actually like has a real tangible impact on you. Mm. So I, I loved it. I, and I will clearly watch it again. And it, it's, it's bonkers as well. Like the way it's directed, um, I, I think this was the first film William Peter Blatty directed, and it, it's like it does these weird cutaways to like fantasies and hallucinations, but not in like a, you know, like how we talked about Point Blank that I think it's nineteen sixty seven with Lee Marvin, mm. and it's like a really heralded as a great film, but when you watch it now, it's just kind of dated in a in a tedious like sixties drug sixties trippy yeah, yeah. trip sequence way yeah doesn't do that in this it'll do like odd cutaways for like a few seconds and come back but it's it's kind of within the narrative it's not just like a you know a 60s hippie drug trip which is good but yeah i've never seen stacy keach young in a film and uh he's perfectly cast in this and it's just you just laugh and laugh for an hour and then you're sort of you sort of sit there with like a really grim face for an hour perfect while you've been talking about this film i've bought it from ebay Good. I need to see it. It sounds amazing. I, I know that I, the only reason I've heard of it is because I know it's a favourite of Mark Kermode's. Uh, obviously, that's what I heard of it. Mentions right. the podcast stuff. Yeah. So when I saw it, I had to watch it. I had to. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I I suppose I only know Stacey Keats from that period from maybe The Long Riders, which famously had various brothers in it so it had the keach brothers it had um quaid brothers in it um but yeah he's he's good he's got gravitas versus his voice isn't it really oh he's amazing his voice and in this film like you said there's so much it's all of the inmates have got like they're mad but in a kind of sort of comedic way you know one of them is trying to cast a shakespeare play with the entire cast of dogs and and it's like this kind of balminess and Stacey Keach just sort of standing there, stone-faced, staring at everyone. is just fantastic. Right, well, obviously no one's going to watch that because I've just purchased it. Right, okay. Um, all right, let's talk about The Goonies. Which let's. is, you can pay for it on Prime, or it's, I, I checked, and it's on Now TV. Um, now, The Goonies, obviously, I, I this is quite a cult 80s favourite from the bang in the mid 80s i do remember watching it as a kid although i it doesn't have the same feeling of nostalgia that it does for some people i, I remember always found finding the shouting annoying anyway the story is that the a bunch of homes are going to be bought up and destroyed decimating this small coastal community in america and on the last day a bunch of kids who call themselves the goonies find a 17th century treasure map in the attic and then they follow the map into this cave full of traps and dangers uh, in order to retrieve the treasure they're being chased by some clumsy mobsters who also want the treasure um the cast involve includes the likes of josh brolin Corey feldman robert davy obviously ja joe pantoliano martha plimpton a lot of 80s faces there. um I mean, they're mostly caricatures, but they all—they're all 
good actors bring bringing life to the parts they play. It's directed by Richard Donner, who's obviously known for Superman and the like, and the Maverick. Weapon, yeah. <laughs> yes, um, and he has this. He has a naturally quite a grand and cinematic eye. So there's some really gorgeous scenery and good crane shots. Uh, production design and set design is atmospheric. Um, I, I always loved how the kids interact with the surface while they're underground. So, for example, they'll look up through a well and talk to people on the surface. And it gives, it captures that sense of childish wonder that what can seem like this kind of mighty adventure is actually just some crappy cave, you know, just below the surface. Isn't it? It's not that exciting, but they make it exciting. So there are not any discarded needles down there as far as I can see, but, you know. I'm sure they're there somewhere. Obviously, Goonies is a touchstone for the likes of Stranger Things, although it's more grounded than Stranger Things and a little bit smarter, to be honest. It's it's really an ode to the imagination and the embellishment of children's imaginations. Um, it, it's like they're not just sharing the experience, but also sharing the experience and making it more magical than it truly is. So in that way, perhaps they just collectively ignoring the needles not sure uh, there's a very specific style to the way that the characters are directed to the actors are directed in the film it's kind of this competitive spirit to the kids conversations where they're kind of talking over each other a lot uh shouting over each other if you like which is actually quite true to life and it almost feels improvised at times um with the, they're talking over each other stumbling their words and stuff and it, it gives the film a very high energy feel but it can be quite exhausting and a bit shrill, to be honest. Um, there probably is just about enough here for modern audiences without the need for nostalgia. It's a very uncynical film, uh, sort of very earnest. I always found the finale a bit dull, though, because it's basically just this slightly lethargic slapstick fight on a an old ship. And... I kind of always wish there was something a bit more magical, a bit more mysterious, a bit more ambiguous. You know, the way that the way you got like Indiana Jones films. Yeah. Will they'll be quite grounded for a while and then there'll be some, some form of magic at the end, some literal magic and it, and it kind of takes it in a slightly different direction. There's not really any of that. It's a bit, bit mundane, the ending, but the action is, clear and varied and the comedy mostly holds up there is a really funny scene where the fat kid chunk recites his life story to the mobsters um and it keeps cutting back to him and he's getting more and more upset and desperate and um it just keeps going back to him and he's like halfway through the story a bit further through the story it's quite funny that um the sentimentality is obviously quite grating but Mm. but i think i'd take that I take sentimentality over self-awareness and self-reference any day, so I'm happy to. That's a tough choice, but yeah, I suppose you're right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's still pretty good. I think if you loved it the first time, you're still going to love it. And I think this, it. I watched it with someone who'd never seen it before, and they enjoyed it. So yeah, I think there is still something there. I think I think I watched it. I mean, years ago, and I—I I, like you said, I don't have the nostalgia for it that a lot of people do. I mean, my my nostalgia high of for films of the eighties is mostly like Arnie films because I grew up watching action films, or and I still do. Weapon. Yes, 
but yeah, so all the kind of kiddie stuff. I had no interest in watching like films, you know, about but kids gang together because I I just wanted to see like enormously muscular men quipping. So, um, just, I, I just wanted I to see it. you wanted to see Arnie in a tiny towel having a fight in a sauna and then bring it out into the snow. Yeah. Well, more cool. specifically, I wanted to see James Belushi being racist <laughs> and unpleasant towards women, but being played like he's just being a cheeky chappy. He is a man from another time, isn't he? Yes. His hair <laughs> is constantly from another time in every film he's in. It's, it's, it's so it's swept back so much, it's actually gone back in time, I think. It's, well, now he's obviously like it's completely gone. So like in recent films where he's cast as like sleazy, greasy salesman, he's got this like awful comb over. It works. When you look mm. at stuff like File of Facts and like, it's always this like weird bouffant or like a unmanageable, like fluffy ponytail, it's always crap. Yeah. Um, Canine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I've got one more. As have I. Right. Good. This is really nice. So my uh, this is White of the Eye, which you've talked about before, and I appear to have deleted from my memory. So I do apologize for like going over this again. My memory so this is, is a story. Crazy as well. But there, I think though, I think I may have. I'm assuming I've picked up one of the things that you. I don't remember you saying. Well, I don't remember your review of it at all. Pardon me, but um, this is a film about a load of wi- young women getting murdered and mutilated. Yay. Um, and a guy who goes around fitting hi-fi systems. This is 1987, by the way. Um, produced by Cassian Elwes, Carrie's brother, which is a bit of a... Th- and the music is by Nick Mason. The music to this film is unremarkable. It's just a load of, like, slide, sort of dusty slide guitar. And, like, you know in the 80s how they just occasionally had, like, drums, like a... That's not. That's nothing. That's someone tuning up a drum kit. Um, so unremarkable music by Nick Mason, and he is uh, the main character played by David Keith. Yes, who looks like our mutual friend Nirvana Dave. Weirdly, in this film, um, is is this hi-fi uh, fitter in the in this sort of um, desert, but wealthy neighborhood, desert-based but wealthy neighborhood, and he gets taken in as a. Um, as a suspect in these murders because the tires on his van match the tires that were at the scene of the most recent crime. And the whole film is like a, is he guilty? Is he not? And I'm going to spoil it uh, because it's from 1987. So just <laughs> skip, skip this now uh, because it's what I have to say is fundamental to knowing this. And he is, he is the killer. So right, this is the eighties and it is gloriously eighties. There's a, bit to start where he's got this like high his hair is ridiculous it's this unmanageable puff and he's got this um uh hi-fi system at the start that is he's saying to his wife um who is played by kathy moriarty oh yeah i've customized it and she's like yeah you've really customized it and i'm thinking has he customized it or has he put on a crap wooden knob on the front it's hard to say sometimes isn't it um and he's so he's going around fitting hi-fis and all these sort of fancy houses and there's a scene at the start which has absolutely no bearing on the film where he just says to his wife as as if she wouldn't have known this he says yeah i've just got this ability you know where i stand in a room and i make a sound and i can just tell where the speakers need to go he just sounds like a wanker car salesman right and he stands up and he just goes and he's like two tweeters at the top based down there and impressed and said you toss her anyway so 
The only time I've ever seen anyone do that in real life, by the way, is when you watch someone tuning up a drum kit and they're hitting a mm-hmm. snare drum and, they, and it's just going bang, bang, and they go, ah, ah, bang, 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 bang. And you're like, what is happening? Is this some sort of weird dance? Um, so, yeah, he does this noise, which makes means nothing, has no bearing on the film at all, but is really like drawn towards as if it is going to have some sort of impact. And his wife... Uh, he gets an alibi from his wife because she finds his van parked behind a woman that she thinks he's having an affair with and she slashes his tire. So when he gets called in for the, the newest murder by Art Evans, who was also in Die Hard 2 as the uh, yes. the sort of friendly guy who runs the the airport, um, he's got an alibi. He's like, oh, my tire was slashed when this one was murdered. I was changing my tire. Um, but the whole film is put out as if it's been filmed out of order and then put back together and they've just mi- mixed bits up because his his wife is like distraught of the thought they've got a daughter called Danielle who's just got the worst mullet I've ever seen in my life I I couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl because it was such an awful mullet it like it just tra- it just went beyond gender and she is distraught that her husband is having an affair and when she she rips into him in the interrogation room and yes so he's kind of got his alibi uh, but his marriage and his family personal life have fallen apart. But don't worry, listeners, because two minutes later, he's saying to his wife, oh, shall I chuck Peter's on? And she's just laughing and kissing him. And you're like, what? Was this was this film before? <laughs> Did they not realize that there would have been like emotional impact to the, the preceding scenes? And the way that she, it's discovered that um, David Keith is the murderer is because his wife is spewing in the toilet and she notices a bit of floss sticking out from beneath the bath and so she pulls out this floss which has got a bit of blood in it which to be (laughs) honest right wouldn't really be you probably just think oh my daughter's done this she's cut her gum and she's just hidden it or whatever yeah but no she's like well obviously now i've got to get a chisel and prize up the awful (laughs) 80s china soap holder and look underneath the bath so she does and just finds all these body parts and the way she deals with her husband being like a brutal serial killer is to not call the police and say, oh, do you know what? I know I know. only minutes ago I gave him an alibi, but I've actually just found body parts in my bathroom. She goes downstairs and said, can I just talk to you about what I found behind the bath? And he goes, oh, orcs. <laughs> and, then, and then, even though we've spent the entire film in private with David Keith, watching how he acts when he's alone and not, you know, not with anyone, one, he suddenly goes totally bonkers and starts chanting about women being the death of the universe and how he's he's, he, he's not really killing them because they're already dead because they're just like a black an emotional black hole and his personality just completely flips for the rest of the film and you're like what <laughs> and there's a weird there's a weird sequence in this where whenever they do a flashback to when him and his wife meet and explain in the backstory yeah. of someone else called mike santos which i will get to in a minute they film it using cameras from the time so this is set in 1987, and then whenever they do a flashback, it's made with cameras from the 70s. So it's just really dark and grainy. Yeah. And you know, it's, yeah, I understand what just you're doing. Which is slightly, yeah. Sort of slightly hard to see. There's also, aside from him standing in rooms and making noises and pointing at where speakers should go, as impressive as that is, he his the the man who he sort of stole his wife from, Mike Santos. When we last see him. He is just this sort of slightly greasy, suave kind of like sort of gangster, like low level gangster type. And his wife stops at a petrol station at some point and hears someone singing a song. And it's this guy from 10 years ago, like an ex that she left for David Keith. And he 
basically looks like Milton from Office Space, but with worse hair and thicker glasses. Now, and uh, he's got this enormous scar across his head, and he's clearly got like mental problems. So she starts talking to him, and he says, um, "Oh yeah, I've I've been in prison, and I had a massive accident. None of which is explored." She doesn't even ask him. If I, if someone bumped into me after ten years, and I said I've been to prison, and I've had a serious head injury, and they went, "Ah." Oh. And like didn't pursue it further. You'd think, oh, okay, then I, I, don't worry about that. But then this guy starts claiming that he can now see into the past and future, right? Oh, yeah. So I know he is busy. So that's be confusing. He says to this woman, "Don't tell David Keith that you've you've seen me. It's important that you tell him you haven't seen me." So she obviously goes on and says, oh, "I bumped into Mike earlier on. He's bonkers." Now, if this man could see into the future or past, he would know that is exactly what would happen. So. It's it's like the script is only thinking one step ahead, but the film is has to go two steps beyond. Yeah. So, at the end of this film, um, you just get David Keith making his stupid noise in a quarry again for no reason, and then Mike Santos turning up and and supposedly even at the end claiming he can see into the past and future, which is another plot point that's really like your attention is drawn towards it, and it's just clearly has no bearing because he's <laughs> constantly surprised by the events of the film. Um. <laughs> It's just it was it's such a weird mess. Um, oh, it's yeah. It's interesting. I'm glad I watched it because the first half hour is kind of like a typical slasher, and then it, it's just like it's just that they dropped the script on the floor, picked it up in the yeah. wrong order, and just carried on filming it. I'm. I found my notes from when I saw it, and I I described it as it starts out as an art rock slasher film, and then turns into a kind of a crime film before turning into a home invasion thriller and i also said it looks gorgeous and while the story is confounding and elusive it's so odd that it's kind of unput downable yeah i, could I also not... mentioned that it's sadly not keith david but david keith unfortunately but you know <laughs> we can't have everything can we um, it's a, yeah. it's completely yeah baffling film but i Nothing else quite like it, I suppose. I have because to say, why would anyone make anything like it? Uh, yeah, I, it's. I was. I knew I was going to be in for a treat, and I knew I'd watch it straight through because it's made by Canon Films, and the only other horror I know that Canon have made is Hellbound, starring Chuck Norris, which is the film that basically ended them. So I was intrigued from the get-go, the moment that Canon logo came I up, and I'm glad I watched it. The only reason this film didn't end them is because I guess it was probably made pretty cheap. I'm supposing. Yeah. True yeah so it's yeah it's i i can't even tell if it's a good film or not to be honest it's just a bizarre film <laughs> one to watch probably once you're unlikely to go back to it too many times i wouldn't have thought yeah uh, yeah so where did you watch that is that on prime you know it was oh, on prime prime isn't it? Yeah. all right let's finish with doom which is on netflix <sighs> This is an action sci-fi horror thriller made in 2005. And it has a relatively esteemed cast. Um, it's got Dwayne Johnson, who is still to this day credited as The Rock in this film, as if Dwayne Johnson wants to distance himself. Um, Carl Urban, uh, Rosamund Pike, and, oh yeah, and uh, Doug Jones gets to play a couple of the monsters, which is good. I think the year is 2046. It's set in. Uh, it's a bunch of grunts sent to Mars through a ridiculous 
like bubble-based transport mechanism um, to investigate a possible catastrophe on the planet. Like a sort of trash horror version of Solaris, they find out that the scientists have gone bonkers. Some of them are turning into zombies, some are mutating into these vicious beasts. And Rosamund Pike plays a scientist who may or may not be aware that her colleagues have been doing genetic experiments, which is what caused the outbreak of madness and violence. Um, so Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, he is kind of cast against Hyper in a way because he's this ruthless, foul-mouthed bad guy. Uh, I can't really imagine him playing such an unequivocally cruel character today. Um, and obviously, Rosamund Pike's good. And Carl Urban, Carl Urban is someone who, he just elevates stuff. He knows exactly how to hit the right tone for these sorts of movies you know um well we're both big fans of carl i i think actually sorry to interrupt um one of the things i was going to say is that um when i watched this this is what 2003 or four or something like that 2005 you know five so, yeah. i remember not having any idea who carl urban was at that time yeah because i my love for him grew later on so i thought the rock was going to be the hero because at that time i was into wrestling mm -hmm. so i think that's why i kind of not only is it well i'll let you describe how it is but it's it was like i didn't know carl urban was and he's the hero and i was like oh i was kind of expecting a rock led yeah. thing so sorry Karen. yeah uh well i i suppose i knew carl urban at that point from lord of the rings and he brought even in lord of the rings he he brings this sort of quite over the top masculinity to things um and plays it like a kind of like a gruff macho man so anyway so yeah he's really good in this and the the production design the lighting the editing they firmly place this film in its period it looks like an expensive tv show yeah. the cgi holds up reasonably well there's a first person sequence which really stands out as gimmicky oh god yeah uh, i remember that yeah but it did occur to me when i was watching that it's interesting to think that actually the latest doom games actually look better than the live action footage in that sequence <laughs> which is quite a thing to consider because of course at the time uh, it would have been doom 3 was the film coming uh, the game that would have been around that time so uh it does take a lot of its kind of visuals from that i i did quite enjoy the movie i thought in terms of plotting i don't really see what else they could do with the source material to be honest mm. um they can't really make it any deeper than it is. It's just about genetic experiments and monsters, really. Um, personally, I would have rather they had slightly more of a sense of isolation. I mean, I, I would have quite happily watched Carl Urban just doing all this stuff on his own. It would have been fine. Um, I suppose the biggest criticism, though, really is, is twofold. It's, it's There's a lack of monster variety in the movie. It's just really just these brutish imps, um, it's a zombie type things and there's one pink demon uh which again is taken from the doom 3 design it, it would have been i think it would have been really cool to see the rock transform into a proper baron of hell at the end maybe mm. that would have been better in fact the whole and that's the other problem with it is that the whole hell aspect which is so integral to the the games especially the recent ones is it's just pretty much absent um 
I'm not sure why that is. Pro- possibly budget restraint. Not sure. Maybe to separate it in people's minds from Event Horizon, which kind of went there already. Not sure, but I suspect it's more to do with the budget of. Was it, and maybe it was wasn't just it like a sort of awkward, uh, tedious banter between the squads as well. I remember it just being a bit tedious yeah. in that respect. There is a bit of banter, but usually when they're on mission, so it isn't too much sitting around bantering. It's more, it's more when they're out in the you know creeping through corridors, getting picked off. So that's fine. Uh, that's not too bad. It's 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 pretty fast moving and it's it's fairly gory. So that's good. There's some decent practical effects and not too much cgi and obviously you've got the charismatic main actors so yeah it's it is enjoyable trash um which is definitely elevated by its cast who clearly know what they're they've signed up for you have kind of made me want to watch this i mean i haven't watched it since it originally came out and i dismissed it at the time yeah i don't think face seen it so this could be a good opportunity actually yeah you have enticed me i didn't expect that uh, yeah, so that's it. That's that's everything I have this week. Yeah, I mean, I, I, one final thing is that in white of the eye, when his wife finds those body parts just like clumsily hidden in plastic bags, like behind the bath, you he is. It's drawn to our attention in the film that he's got an entirely separate barn that he uses as a workshop that no one ever really goes in. So he could have mm. just kept it in there, really. And just and his wife wouldn't find it when she's spewing. So <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> So, so obviously, the yeah. for me, the film of the podcast has got to be the ninth configuration. I adore it. It so good. I bought it live. As I was talking about it, yeah. The first time that's happened. Um, <laughs> so w- w- what would yours be? Um, well, I think that it's uh, it's got to be it. I mean, obviously, The Sixth Sense is great, but everyone kind of knows about that. I think, um, I think it's got to be if in terms of documentary then well there's only one documentary what killed michael brown but it's obviously pretty heavy and it's for a very specific purpose but i think if you're gremlins 2 i think would probably be my recommendation because it's perhaps a film which is possibly overshadowed by the original um and possibly people might be assuming that it's not as good but i would say it's better and a lot of fun and got some really cool monster designs and genuinely funny. So yeah, I'd go with Gremlins 2, the new batch. Gremlins 2 and ninth configuration. What a back to back that would be. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it's actually, we've had some pretty good films this week, which is always nice as opposed to just a load of mediocrity. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, usual question from me. Have you got anything on the way or things lined up? I've got I nothing. Do, actually. To yeah. I mean, I, I just watched the butterfly effect um and i'm i've st- whatever i started watching something else uh oh, i'm trying to i'm working my way through venom but i i feel that like i need to be more in the mood for that because <laughs> i'm struggling but yeah um yeah so maybe those two next time how about you anything on the cards no maybe do police no. academy yeah the entire mission of moscow no i'm um Nothing. I, I kind of, I'm a bit of a chancer. I'm, I just have a bit of a scroll and see what, what jumps yeah. up to me. And that's how you come across gold like Ghost Keeper. But well, hopefully, yeah, ninth configuration will be here by the time we next meet. So. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, I, I can understand why 
I, I realize I'm in the relative minority when it comes to Venom, but it's just because I love the character so much. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, so let me know what you think, and I'll find out next time. Excellent. Well, all my love. Uh, some of mine, <laughs> and and the rest soon. So <laughs> never all. <laughs> and uh, I shall speak to you soon. Cheers, love. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye.